Emergency medicine extract with Sanjay and Mike. All right, well, welcome back, EMA Verse. How's it going, everyone? This is an exciting episode for me. This is Mike here. And the reason it's exciting is because I've been invited back. As most of you know from listening for the last several months, I had a huge blow up with Mel at the retreat and he fired me on the spot. And last month, because he had fired me, Brit Guest had to guest as me with Sanjay. But they did such a terrible job that they fired both of them on the spot. And I was rehired, I would like to say. So I'm, I'm glad to be back. And with me instead of Sanjay, because he is fired, is Whitney Johnson, Dr. Whitney Johnson, doing her inaugural EMA episode. How's it going, Whitney? Good morning. How are you feeling? Super nervous, but excited to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, I'm one of MRAP's newest faculty. I actually started with MRAP back when I was a resident, and I do a lot of the written content and medical editing for MRAP. So I was formerly the fellow and then just became the faculty. Did my training at UCSF Fresno uh, for residency and then did my medical editing fellowship at USC LA County. And now I work as faculty at UHS SoCal Mech. I don't know what that means. UHS, so that sounds like a ship. <laughs> it's a consortium. It's okay. a group of hospitals. No, but you, you work in, so Whitney works in Temecula, am I correct? That's right. That? That's my primary hospital. Right, which is, you know, sort of wine country of Southern California, if you will. And you live in San, San Diego. She lives in San Diego. Sunny and, San Diego. <laughs> in sunny San Diego. And we're doing this taping in Rossmore at Sanjay's house because though he was fired, he graciously offered his house because that's where our little studio is. He seems pretty bitter about it. But, you know, hey, c'est la vie. Pretty nice of him. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty nice of him. Anyway, we've got 20 papers this month to go through, and we're going to grind through them. Oh, I completely forgot. Happy New Year. This is the January 2022 oh, episode. Yes. So I assume that the dedicated listeners are listening to this on New Year's Day 2022. And so I'm wishing you. Heartfelt, happy new year. I hope you made lots of resolutions. I have, because it's actually only November 1st here, I still have two months to figure out what my resolutions will be, but I hope that you've made good ones and that you'll be able to stick to them for the coming several months. And hopefully 2022 will be a better year than 2021 and 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so happy new year to everybody. We survived the pandemic or hopefully yeah. getting there. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you don't know this, but we've realized that because this comes out two months after you know, we record it and it gets published two months later, we're consistently 100% wrong about the, cons the, the pandemic. So if we're like, oh, yeah, hey, yeah. things are looking good, <laughs> guaranteed it's going to be a disaster in January 2022. So hopefully we're doing some sort of reverse jinx on ourselves right now. And by saying, I hope you're having a good New Year's, that that doesn't make it a bad New Year's. We're starting up on the right foot. Yeah, it's I'm putting all, out the vibe. I'm yeah, putting out the vibe. We're putting out the vibe for a good 2022. So that's that. We have a great month. We've got 20 papers. I think a lot of them are really cool. I like my papers. I like your papers too, but I don't know if you like them. I dig them. Yeah. <laughs> they well, were you, hard, but well, I dig them. You, uh, you have some stuff on like some really clinically relevant, practical stuff, like on cardiac arrest and things like that. 
what is your first paper? It's the uh, so my first paper is on cardiac arrest. I think some a couple of my favorites have to do with the thing that I love to do the most, which is do procedures. Okay. Uh, so there's a couple of questions about a few common procedures that we do and some of the rarer ones. So I think I like those papers the best. Okay, great. I actually my paper chase is about cardiac arrest too. Yours is about how to save the cardiac arrest. Mine is about what you do once you've saved the person who um, has cardiac arrest. So that's pretty cool. I'm really looking forward to going through those. We also have a few other segments, obviously. We have a little bit of uh, time to talk nerdy with Ken and Swami, and that's going to be surrogate endpoints. And then, of course, we have the ultra summary by Jess and Jenny, uh, which I always love listening to You know, when it comes out a couple months later here, what their take on our take of the work is. Right on. All right. So I think, unless there's something pressing that we need to do besides get after these papers, I think we can go right after it. I say let's launch the new year. Paper chase. Paper number one, effect of vasopressin and methylprednisolone versus placebo on return of spontaneous circulation in patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest. This is a randomized clinical trial by Anderson et al. And the journal was JAMA. And so Ultimately, we know that the patient survival of in-hospital cardiac arrest is about 25%, fairly low. Uh, The recommendations and general ACS protocols that we follow focus a lot on early recognition and optimizing your chest compressions in the hopes of optimizing your outcome in that regard. And over the past decade, we've had quite a few studies that look at these strategies for management in the out-of-hospital setting. But there have been very few that have actually looked at interventions and outcomes for in-hospital cardiac arrest, where you would think that you have the greatest possibility of getting ROSC in your patient because they're right there with most often a witnessed arrest. So some of the literature on out-of-hospital arrests have evaluated whether or not vasopressin and steroids play a role. There's only been two small RCTs over recent years, though, that have really looked at its utility in the in-hospital setting and in its application with ACLS. And so theoretically, vasopressin's ability to cause vasoconstriction and what we know it does mechanistically, which is increasing arterial blood pressure, is thought that it could also increase your coronary perfusion pressure, which would improve your chance of getting ROSC. Makes sense, right? And then in animal studies that they've looked at using steroids to increase cortisol levels were actually increased the chances of achieving ROSC as well. So the theoretical thought behind these medications is that they can potentially get you ROSC. Even though there have been trends that may suggest improvements in ROSC with early introduction of these adjuncts, ACLS hasn't really changed and these therapies haven't really been formally adapted. So this study actually focused on in-hospital arrest and asked the question, does the combination of vasopressin and methylprednisolone improve ROSC for in-hospital cardiac arrest? So this was a multi-center randomized control trial done in 10 hospitals across Denmark. They looked at approximately 500 adult patients that had cardiopulmonary arrest in the hospital. There were two groups. The control group, they applied ACLS with saline, essentially, and pushed that as their med. But they gave, like, epi per usual. Patients still got epi, that's right. Compared to the intervention group that standard ACLS, but with every round of epi that was given... They were also given 40 milligrams of methylprednisolone and 20 units of vasopressin, up to four rounds of this. Okay, so I just want to make sure I have that clear in my head. 
you can give up to a million doses of epi. And in this case, you can give it up to a million doses of epi plus vasopressin and steroids. For the first four rounds. For four, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's a lot of vasopressin and a lot <laughs> is, of steroids. It's it not like though? a one-time dose and then continue on. It's every time you re-up the epi, right. the intervention group re-upped the vasopressin steroids as well. That's right. Okay. So ultimately, the I would the, like to think that you could jumpstart a car with that combination. Yeah, you can raise the dead. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what they were hoping to find out. Right. So primary outcomes they looked at were whether or not ROSC was achieved. And then the secondary outcomes were if there was any impact on favorable neurologic outcomes at 30 days. So overall, the results looked at the general population, which was predominantly men. 64% men, the average age was about 71 years old. The randomization looked pretty good, and the groups were fairly balanced. So most of the in-hospital arrests occurred on the medical or med surge units, and about 90% of patients presented with an initial non-shockable rhythm. So most of it was PEA arrest. That seems consistent with my experience in in-hospital cardiac arrest. It's usually right. some septic person that finally goes PEA or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that, usually that dialysis the, patient right. with CHF who yeah. inevitably Yeah, they're not usually sitting there going out reading the newspaper and all of a sudden going to VTAC. Right. So in both of these groups, it only took about five to eight minutes as far as the response time to getting the first dose of epi with initiation of the ACLS protocol. In the intervention group, approximately 42% of patients got ROSC compared to the control group where only 33% of those patients got ROSC. That sounds fantastic. This is consistent with what we see in the pre-hospital literature, too, that showed these meds improved outcomes as far as getting ROSC. Um, and so that kind of establishes that if you give these meds with epi, there's a good chance you're going to get ROSC. When you look at the subgroup analysis, most of those patients in the interventional group had an initial shockable rhythm, were younger, had a witnessed arrest, so the start time was actually a little bit faster, and received early administration of the ACLS medications. And so all of these factors in general, we know, are going to optimize your chances of getting ROSC, irregardless of whether or not you use the adjunct medications. So I wasn't quite sure how to interpret that. Well, when I looked at their subgroup tables, it just looked like they had done a bunch of planned subgroups. And in each of those like favorable conditions, like younger, shockable, et cetera, the treatment effect was the same. So it favored the intervention group with that roughly, you know, that 20% relative improvement across those different subgroups. So there wasn't like, it, when I looked at it, it just didn't look like there was one subgroup that did particularly well or particularly poorly. It right. seemed to be a fairly, you know, if you will, a homogeneous effect across those subgroups. Right, right. And I think that kind of contributes to what their overall conclusion was. Only a few limitations of this study, really, that I took note of, which is an overall lack of generalizability based on the patient demographic, you know, it's predominantly... Danes. <laughs> men. So how do you apply it to us gals? Yeah. And then just the lack of the consistent early administration. I think the times were a bit off. The study noted that most of the patients received their initial dose within eight minutes, but there were some instances of late delivery. Interestingly, I also noticed that there wasn't really an evaluation of the time to ROSC, which would have been an interesting point for me to kind of consider, because this is something that I feel goes into how we think about our neurologic outcomes and our chances of survival. But overall, in this study, the combination of vasopressin and steroids led to an improvement in primary outcomes, which was they were able to get ROSC. Do you care about that primary outcome? 
Not really. Let's <laughs> okay. cut to the chase I here, mean, Whitney. Let's be real about it. When right. I think about it, I'm like, well, if it was really that good, then why hasn't ACLS changed? Likely because of the thing we do care about as physicians, which is that secondary outcome, which showed that at 30 days, only 9.7% of patients with ROSC lived. That was in the intervention group. Mm-hmm. Only 12% in the control group actually lived either. So, so it was higher, though, in the control group. It was. Yeah. And that was the group that was just epi, epi saline. Yeah. So, you know, I... I, I'm I'm with you on this one. I, I don't care that much about these findings. I mean, you know, it's interesting. If your goal is really ROSC, then probably you can do this. But we know that that's true. That's been true for years. I mean, go, dating back to 20 years when I was a resident and they were giving escalating doses of epinephrine, you give people five milligrams of epinephrine, you can jumpstart a corpse if you do that. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Um, but what happens is they either have the same neuro, you know, bad outcomes in terms of survival, or sometimes if you're really lucky and you do your study just right, you can actually get fates worse than death. That is, oh you know- Oh my gosh, what is worse than death? Well, you, get, you produce more alive people with severe neurologic deficits. In this study, the outcomes of severe neurologic, you know, the, the survival with good neurologic deficit was the same in both groups. Right. Um, and they don't report actually survival with severe neurologic deficits, but it is possible to actually produce even worse than death results. And we've seen that in some studies of like high doses of epi and stuff like that. So I think this to me seems more of the same, which is you give people a bunch of stuff that constricts coronary arteries, you probably end up with, you know, ROSC that's temporary and ultimately doesn't, you know, do anything in terms of survival. Right. And for me, I mean, on the ground floor, when you're talking to a patient's family, that's not very helpful, you know, that's great. You restarted the heart, but can I realistically say, and I think we kind of have an idea if I've been running this case for 45 minutes or more, like the chances of a favorable neurologic outcome, depending on the patient I know is, is something that I care more to talk with the patient, with the family about. So I don't know that this literature would really help me in having that discussion. Yeah, I do think that that point about the time to ROSC is kind of interesting. I hadn't picked that up when I read the paper or really thought about that. It would be an interesting sort of note. You know, it's more hypothesis generating. But if this stuff produces late ROSC, if the groups, you know what I mean? Like if, it's, if vasopressin and steroids produce ROSC, but 35 minutes into the code, that's probably going to produce, you know, a very poor outcome right. overall. If it produced it earlier, like very early within a couple of minutes, maybe that would give me a little bit more to hold on to and think that this is going to be a, a you know, a long-term productive strategy. Exactly. But, That's what I'd be more yeah. interested in. If it was saying that from, you know, if I initiate ACLS within five minutes and, you know, they saw that they got Ross within 10 minutes of that, you know, I'm going to give that a try for what it's worth. Yeah. But right now it sounds like we need a little more information, a little more data, better clinical outcomes you know, like actually patient-oriented outcomes as opposed to ROSC-oriented outcomes before putting this into the old tool belt. Yeah. I mean, good study. Well done. Um, not going to change the current ACLS algorithm or standards. Edit this commentary. This is a large RCT examining incidences of ROSC for patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest utilizing ACLS protocols coupled with administration of vasopressin and steroids. The results show a higher percentage of ROSC in those patients who received adjunct medications. However, for most of us, the endpoint that matters is neurologically meaningful survival, which these medications do not change. Overall, this study does well to establish that these adjuncts mixed into your ACLS algorithm are more often going to lead to ROSC, but not necessarily improve functional outcomes. 
All right, abstract number two, angiography after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest without ST segment elevation. This is by Deutsch et al., and it's in the illustrious New England Journal of Medicine. I hope that this is the last article we have to do on this topic for quite a while. At issue is, again, what do you do with those patients in who you give enough epinephrine and or vasopressin and steroids, as we've just learned, (laughs) to resurrect, right? What do you do once they're resurrected? We've covered a host of papers on this topic over the past few years, but I'll go over the logic once again. People suddenly die. This is for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, for the record. We think this often happens due to an MI, right? They suddenly drop dead. When we cath these people who've had return of spontaneous circulation, a lot of coronary lesions are identified, even fresh lesions, the ones that the cardiologists somehow say, that's a fresh clot. So they're like, okay, presumably that is the etiology of their cardiac arrest. They had this fresh clot, they went into VTAC, boom. Opening fresh culprit lesions in routine cardiac cases, so people with STEMIs, is associated or actually causes better clinical outcomes, improved survival, less CHF, etc. So the logic here is that that must be true in these other cases, even though in most of these cases, they don't have ST segment elevation MI. So you resuscitate the person, you do an EKG, they don't have a STEMI, you say, why did they drop dead? And no one has any clue. They say, well, it must have been cardiac. This stuff never applies to people who were drowning or something who have another etiology of their arrest that's obvious. And that's the story. The problem is that the only serious randomized controlled trial on this topic failed to observe any hint of improved mortality for cardiac arrest without STEMI survivors who underwent immediate angiography versus a sort of a delayed or a selective approach. And that trial looked at patients who had shockable rhythms only, a group that they thought was likely to have a higher likelihood of having a fresh culprit lesion than if you took all people with any cardiac rhythm, right? So that's the only study to date. We covered it a few years ago in EMA. A lot of people have talked about that study. This study is a sort of like, you know, companion study to it that extend those findings to any survivor of cardiac arrest with possible cardiac origin regardless of the initial rhythm. So between 2016 and 2019, these authors randomized German resuscitated out-of-hospital cardiac arrest victims regardless of their initial rhythm, but whose post-ROSC ECG did not show ST elevation MI. And they randomized them to immediate angio, took them straight down to the angio suite, versus delayed angio. So what they did in that delayed group is they stabilized the patients, admitted them to the ICU, and then did an angio a number of days later if the treating physicians felt that it was necessary or warranted. The primary outcome was survival, and secondary outcomes was death or survival with severe neurologic outcomes. So they randomized 558 people, about 250, a little over 250 in each group, making it the largest trial to date on this topic. The mean age was 70, again, like the last trial of cardiac arrest, 70% men. Most of these had favorable prognostic indicators. Though they were out of hospital cardiac arrest, most were witnessed arrests, and just over half of them had an initially shockable rhythm. 95% of those who were randomized to the early cath group actually got early cath, so they did what they were supposed to do. I mean, one way to make a study fail is just, just not do it. You know, you're like, you're randomized to cath. But we just, we were like, nah, pass, you know, <laughs> yeah. so, they, so no, that, that does happen. So it's important to see that the treatment that they were allocated to actually was delivered. And it was, 
And in the other group, something like just over 60% eventually got a cath. But, you know, 30% or 35% never even got a cath, probably because they had already died by day two or something when they were planning on, on doing the cath. The mean time to getting the angio was just under three hours for the immediate cath group. And the mean time to getting the angio for the delayed cath group was just under two days. So 47 hours. And that would, just to clarify, uh-huh. that was if the physician thought it was warranted? Yeah. Yes. Only those patients in whom the physician decided it was warranted. And I think, you know, they don't go into all that detail. Right. Did they mention like what warranted? No, <laughs> but I think, you know, to me, I sort of, I sort of get it, right? Like if somebody comes in post-ROSC, you admit them to the ICU and their blood cultures start growing out E. coli, you know, you're like, right. you know what? You start resuscitating them, you give them their antibiotics and fluids. You're like, this is not a primary cardiac lead. Their troponins don't hit a million. Their EKG looks pretty good. It doesn't develop Q waves or anything weird. You're like, this is probably not, you know, it's probably not worth taking this patient to the cath lab with all the risks and costs associated with moving a critical patient over to the cath lab. Right. Um, right. So still, you know, 60 something percent did get a delayed cath, but, you know, that 30% didn't as well. All right. What are the key findings? To say that immediate angio did not work does not do justice to how spectacularly this strategy failed. <laughs> okay. Death from any cause was 46% in the delayed group, 46%, right. and 54% in the immediate group, a result that is borderline statistical significance. The same was true for severe neurologic injury, which happened 19% of the time in the immediate group versus 12% in the delayed group. So very significant. Well, the statistical significance on those is marginal, but the effect Mm -hmm. size is pretty big. Taken together, 64% of the immediate angio group had death or severe neurologic injury, and only 55% of that had those outcomes in the delayed group. An absolute difference of 9% or a number needed to harm of 11. Interestingly, when they cat these people, the, the immediate group, they actually did find a lot of culprit lesions in both the early group and the delayed group, and they did a ton of PCIs on both groups. It just didn't help them to do those PCIs early. For what it's worth, there were no subgroups in which the immediate angio appeared to do better than the delayed group, including those with and without shockable rhythm, because they had both in this case. So, immediate angio seems much more likely to harm people on average than delayed angio. And this data would argue that doing all the other stuff we do in emergency medicine and critical care medicine, like stabilizing blood pressure, trying to identify alternative sources of the cardiac arrest, whether it's you know head trauma or sepsis or whatever else, should be the top priority for these patients in the immediate post-ROSC period and not trying to ship off somebody who has unstable vital signs, who's going in and out of PEA and stuff like that off to the angio suite. In doing that, we seem to be producing worse outcomes. That's interesting. So I think my question about this, having listened to all of this and knowing some of the older literature before, I've got, you know, a new class of residents mm-hmm. at Temecula. I've given the post-ROS care talk before. After reading this paper, do you think that there's any portion of this that I should be integrating into that lecture moving forward? Does this help me at all as far as like talking about the approach to post-ROS care? Yeah, well, like I said, I think that's a great question. I think for me, it really emphasizes that what we do in emergency medicine matters. And I think we often think like, oh, let's get them off to the cath lab. That's where the the magic happens. That's where the cardiologist can 
pry open an artery and stick a stent right, in there yeah. and all that Scary kind of EKG. stuff. Activate, right. activate. Yeah. <laughs> but what we do really matters. It's our stabilization, you know, in our critical care colleague stabilization. It's not, we're, you know, we're a team. I get that. But us doing all of those things, actually, you know, the little things, the fluids, the steroids, the making sure you've checked for things that are otherwise reversible, all those things add up to improved outcomes as opposed to saying, you know what? I shocked him. I gave him 12 grams of vasopressin or 300 <laughs> units or whatever it is and a bunch of steroids. I got his heart started. Now, cardiology, it's, it's your fault. Go work, work your magic. They don't have any magic. You know, that's it. The other thing I would just emphasize is that please remember, this is only for patients who do not have post-ROSC STEMI, right? If you have a post-ROSC STEMI, all available recommendations are to take those patients to the cath lab per usual for patients with STEMI. Now, it may turn out, I would not be surprised if at some point in the future, we find that that's not even true, that there's still more important stuff to do in terms of protecting brain cells and making sure other stuff's not going on. But for right now, post-ROSC STEMI, go to cath lab. Post-ROSC, no STEMI, stabilize, stabilize, stabilize. Let the dust settle. Make sure that patient can tolerate a trip to the angio comfortably, that'll probably happen in a couple of days and they'll have better outcomes. Makes sense. Editor's commentary. In this large, well-conducted randomized controlled trial, early or immediate coronary angiography did not benefit resuscitated cardiac arrest patients who did not have STEMI on their post-ROSC ECG. In fact, the studies showed tendency towards harm for this early aggressive strategy. To date, there are no trial data suggesting the early approach is beneficial. Patients should be stabilized and optimized before undergoing this procedure. Clinical practice. Okay, so paper number three, protection of BNT162B2 vaccine booster, aka Pfizer, against COVID-19 in Israel. This is a paper done by Baron et al., and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So you know it's got to be good. It's got to be legit. This one, obviously, is a topic that we all hold near and dear to us. <laughs> this is a very long battle that we've had with COVID-19, with a lot of trial and error in the face of this evolving virus. We fought it really hard last year. A lot of what we did, we were just flying off the seat of our pants. Thought we got over the hump, and then good old Delta came and, and hit us with another round. But a major turning point late last year actually came when vaccines were developed. There was some sense that of progress given by this added layer of protection, potentially, but no one really knew how long the vaccine-elicited immunity would last or how effective it would continue to be as we start to see a lot of the mutations, like with Delta coming or anything that might potentially happen after. And so this led to discussions about COVID booster shots, something similar to our annual flu vaccine. So this study done in Israel, which is a small country where the initial vaccine rate was pretty high, they tried to evaluate the rate of confirmed COVID-19 infections and severity of illness in those patients receiving a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine. So it was a review of a huge Israeli database from the Ministry of Health that looked at a one-month time period where they had approximately 500,000 vaccinated patients. Their patient population focused on those that were 60 years or older. And the two groups were pretty evenly distributed, with most of the patient demographic being Jewish females between the age of 60 and 69. And the two groups here are people who got the third 
dose. And those who, they were primarily vaccinated, but didn't get a third dose. Yes. Okay. So that's the important thing yeah. to remember here is that this study looked at all comers were completely vaccinated. So everyone in this study had at least what we consider to be fully vaccinated, two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. But the intervention group would have been considered the booster group, the group that received a third dose of the vaccine compared to the control group, which was the group that only had the first two doses. And remember that in this group that we looked at, the patients actually had to have the vaccine five months earlier. That's what we actually care about, right, is whether or not we have waning immunity in this regard. Primary outcome here was the rate of COVID-19 infections after getting a booster compared to those vaccinated individuals who did not receive the booster. And the secondary outcome was the severity of illness in those who received the booster compared to those who had not. And then they used a fancy regression model to extrapolate the rates of infection. So overall, in those receiving the booster at least 12 days prior, the rate of COVID-19 infections was lower as well as the severity of illness. And so looking at this a little bit more closely, looking at the numbers, we had 4,400 cases of COVID infections in the non-boosted group compared to 930 cases in the boosted group. And they had 290 cases of severe illness in the non-booster group compared to those of 29 cases in the booster group. So readers... I think when we look at these numbers, should be mindful of the fact that overall, the rates of infection in both these groups were very low. So 4,300 infections in the control group is out of like millions of or 500,000 people for, that were watched for many months. Or right, like right. So let's not get it twisted. We've right. got these cases that were identified in the non-boosted groups are only a few hundred in like, they use like 5.2 million persons days. Right. Okay. Um, which is still really good without the use of booster. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like the booster dropped it by a lot. You said 290 for severe cases versus 29 or something, right? Right, okay. exactly. So some utility there. And, and the people that were most likely to have severe illness were those that were identified as older, male, Jewish, and had received the vaccine way back in January compared to those who had received it in later months, but were still five months out. And really the limitations of this study and the thing that I thought was interesting, and I guess it's more of a question to you than talking about it, was this idea of dynamic membership. So oh, the, yeah. many of the patients moved on from the non-boosted group to the boosted group once they had been vaccinated and 12 days had passed. And so I don't really know how to interpret those results of using yeah. this dynamic membership. What's your take on that? Well, uh, yeah. So that means that somebody could have would have been in the control group at certain points right. of, the, of the study, and then we'll have flipped over to the intervention group when, once they get boosted. Right. So and how do happens. you look at those results then if you are jumping yeah. ship from one group to the other? Yeah, this, this happens. We see this in a lot of different kind of observational studies. And generally speaking, I think of that as attenuating results because the same person sort of moves from the control to the intervention group. Mm -hmm. So since people tend to behave like themselves even regardless of what happens. If you, were, you know, if you tend to not get COVID in the control, you tend to not get it in the intervention phase as well. So I think that generally speaking, that'll attenuate the results of any intervention that you're looking at. So probably that's a, a conservative thing to happen. 
And so it wouldn't worry me that that's making the results better gotcha. than okay. they actually are. So it's are. not really skewing the It might what? skew it a little bit, but probably on onto the the conservative side, which is generally kind of what you want, right? If you're doing a study and you want to, you know, if you want to feel confident in the results, you want to have some conservative estimates. So I think that this is probably a conservative estimate. And I think they found it was like 20 times less likely to get severe COVID. So it sounds to me like, yeah, I got my booster on day one. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I was like the first one. I went to CVS and I was like, hey, I, they said I could get boosted because I'm a healthcare professional, obviously. And they were like, oh, we're not ready to do that. I'm like, I have an appointment. Your, your little app said, so <laughs> yes, I made them do it. And they were like, that okay. That's classic. Yeah. Yeah, I totally uh, got mine too. I thought about it from, like, this makes a very good point from a public health perspective, right? It echoes kind of the recommendation and information that we as physicians are counseling our friends and family about because they're asking these questions. Mm -hmm. So the vaccines, we know, significantly reduce the risk of hospitalization, severe illness, and death. Although we do see some sustained high efficacy of the current two-dose regimen over six months, Booster doses in certain populations might actually be more beneficial, and in this case, in in the elderly, the immunocompromised, and those in high risk occupations. Editor's commentary. In this large population-based study done in Israel, there was an examination of the rates of COVID infection in patients older than 60 years old, both those having received a booster and the unboosted. Overall, the rates of COVID infection and severity were low in both populations. But the paper points out that patients receiving the booster were 120th as likely to contract a serious infection compared to those who did not receive the booster. Abstract number four, Regen-Cove antibody combination and outcomes in patients with COVID-19 by Weinreich et al., Again, New England Journal of Medicine. Heavy papers. JAMA, New England, New England, JAMA, New England. Yeah. Big, big time this month. So this is the long-awaited report of the Regen-Cove antibody combination that was famously used by then-President Donald Trump when he developed a case of severe COVID infection back in September of 2020. So if you're a regular listener, you'll recall that I covered a competing monoclonal antibody cocktail made by Lilly just in the November episode. That was the first published study showing clinical effectiveness of preformed monoclonal antibody cocktails for the treatment of high-risk individuals with early COVID-19 infection. Unfortunately, the Lilly product is ineffective for the Delta Plus variant of COVID, which tempered enthusiasm for it overall and actually makes it relatively unavailable throughout the United States. This product, the one we're, we're talking about in this uh, study, is made by Regeneron Pharmaceuticals and is thought, well, it does maintain in vitro activity against all known variants. The research question here is whether the combination of, I'm going to butcher these two MABs, I'm going to call them casavirumab and imdevimumab. And you'll have no idea if I said it right or not, because sure you're don't. not looking at the numbers and the people in their cars driving have really no idea. <laughs> I'm glad that's so, your paper, yeah. not mine. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I feel bad when I butcher the names of that. I always picture that there's like some parent monoclonal antibody you know, and they're like, we named our son Casimirabab, and you called him Casimirabab, <laughs> and the monoclonal antibodies are really sad about it, and it's like mispronouncing someone's name. It should make me seem ignorant, but in fact, it's insulting to them. You know, uh, but so your I, scientist subscribers are officially logging off. I don't. I don't know. I, I I think it's really it's the monoclonal antibodies themselves. Anyway, it's a uh, it's the research question is whether those two MABs can prevent hospitalization or death in outpatients who have early COVID nineteen infection. 
It's actually a very complex study design using this sort of adaptive design, which means that as information becomes available in early parts of the trial, they change the protocol, including the dosing of the agents, to reflect the sort of best available science at the moment. Functionally, this means that they started with a host of possible doses for the RegenCoV product and settled on either 1,200 or 2,400 milligrams. They randomly enrolled patients one-to-one-to-one to one of these doses or placebo. At some point, the placebo was dropped per their data safety monitoring board recommendation. The primary outcome was COVID-related hospitalization or any cause death through 29 days. The main secondary outcome was time to symptom resolution. They looked at other markers, including like sort of the rate of decrease of viral load and stuff like that. But those were the two main things I think that they were focused on. To be enrolled in the study, the patients had to be over 18, have symptoms for no more than seven days, so early infection, and have at least one risk factor for severe COVID infection, which you know roughly translates to obesity, older age, or some form of immunocompromise. So you had to have one of those to enter into the study protocol. And just to clarify that patient population, mm-hmm. symptoms for seven days and a confirmed positive COVID test, or are they just assuming? No, they had to have a confirmed positive PCR test. Got it. They actually measured the viral load in their nose and everything else too. So oh, yeah, fancy. To, yeah, it's okay. very fancy. The reporting of this trial is, let's just say, a little atypical, and it makes it a little hard to summarize. Some of that's due to some of this complex design, but honestly, some of it seems to be a little bit of willful. I'm just going to say willful. <laughs> they end up reporting on four groups. The 2,400 milligram group, the one that got 2,400 milligrams, the one that got 1,200 milligram group, and two different placebo groups. That has to do with this adaptive design. There's like an earlier phase and a later phase, et cetera. Overall, though, it's a big study involving 4,200 people performed at many, many sites. And as far as I can tell, they were all in the United States. The mean age was 50. They're about 50% men, 80% white, and the mean BMI was 31%. Median time from symptoms to getting the treatment or the placebo was three days. And the groups do appear balanced in terms of you know, the, whether the randomization worked or not. The placebo group didn't seem sicker or less sick than the two intervention groups. The results. In terms of the primary outcome, 1% of the Regen Cove group had a COVID-related hospitalization or death within 29 days compared with 4% of the placebo group. So an absolute difference of 3%. I'm using some slight approximations here to compensate for that strange reporting they did with two different placebo groups and stuff, mm. but I'm fairly confident that these reflect you know, the numbers that we can sort of sink our teeth into. This difference, 4 versus 1%, was statistically significant. Remember, this is a very big study. Adverse events were exceedingly rare, and this is something that the authors of this is gonna, are going to have to explain to me, but adverse events were somehow more common in the placebo group than in the intervention group. What were they describing as adverse? Who cares? It's saline. (laughs) It's impossible. That's what I want to know. Are they saying like adverse events being like shortness of breath? But they all got the same amount. from COVID. They they all got the same amount of fluid. So no, it's literally like, like, it's it's impossible. It's like a totally biologically impossible situation. Were they allergic to salt water? But the the MAB had salt water in it too. It's, it's, It's nuts. It's nuts. Anyway, having said that, you know, this is a 70% reduction in hospitalizations, which is, you know, actually what's been reported in the lay press. Of course, the absolute risk reduction is only 3%. So that translates to a number needed to treat of over 33 patients 
to prevent one hospitalization. Median time to resolution of symptoms was 14 days in the placebo and 10 in the, in the Regen Cove group. So, you know, a little bit faster. Now, I hope you're asking, what about death, right? I mean, hospitalizations, eh, save one hospitalization, 33 people. That's a lot. I mean, you know, it, it might be worth it, might not. What about death? Well, that's where this study kind of gets interesting, actually. Death as a lone outcome is not found in the main manuscript at all. It's always death or hospitalization, death or hospital, even in like the buried tables at the back of the manuscript, not there at all. And honestly, I'm just going to say, I'm embarrassed for the New England Journal of Medicine that they allowed it to be published that way. I just, I cannot believe that when everybody would want to know what, you know, whether the death rate was different, that they allowed them to not put that in a little, you know, box somewhere. So they didn't report like how many more people died in one group versus the other. Not in the paper directly, but ah, okay. I, I, why, I found why it. Not? <laughs> I found it. I, I'll tell you why not. I found it. It was, in fact, published on page uh, 38 of the supplementary materials in table nine. Right. And actually, at the very bottom of table nine, which is table nine. I not, never looked that yeah. far in any so, paper. And what it is, is, here's what it showed. Two people out of 2,100 people died in the Regen Cove group, which is 0.1%. Two. Four people died in the placebo group, 0.2%. So 0.1 versus 0.2. Obviously, this was not statistically significant. The rates are really, really tiny. But even if it were statistically significant, imagine that they did a study big enough and they could show you 0.1 versus 0.2. The number needed to treat would literally be 1,000, right? Which is, you know, crazy high number. This stuff is really expensive, really hard to administer because, you know, you have to have people on IVs and all this kind of stuff. And there's, at this point, no evidence from either study on these monoclonal antibodies that they improve uh, mortality outcomes. They do, both of them seem to reduce hospitalizations in these higher risk groups. The other one had a number needed to treat, I think, of like 26 or 27. This one has a number needed to treat of roughly 33. You know, you have to start asking yourself, is it worth it at this point to, to be doing that? And I can't answer that question. I can just say that there doesn't appear to be any mortality benefit whatsoever, or at least not one that's in any way proven. So what's it all mean? Stuff probably works. It's a high number needed to treat it, a lot of cost, and a lot of challenges in terms of actually administering it. I just don't see a future for this, given all of this. And you know, it basically has no chance of, of improving mortality based on the numbers that we're already seeing. Newer drugs that are oral are emerging. And if they have similar efficacy, those might be worth produ- you know, doing because the, at least the logistical challenge of administering them will be improved. But I don't see much future for, for this drug. You know in terms of like actual clinical effectiveness. Okay. So giving it to me in layman's terms, I have a patient that, you know, all our patients, we fight against Dr. Google all the uh-huh. time that are Googling it and come up with this. How would you counsel this patient if they ask you, well, you know, I know you've got the antidote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's a really tough question. And, you know, in, in my last commentary about this, I sort of said, you know, look, I don't know how we're going to manage these cases. I think that you you know this is at a hospital level. Mm. Um, I think you have to decide at hospital levels whether or not you have the capacity and willingness to do this. I mean, it has an indication if someone is old and frail and everything else, you know, and they come in and they they have moderate symptoms. You know, you can counsel them and say, let's just be clear about it right off the bat. There's no evidence that this is going to save your life. That's absolutely not the case. There is some evidence that it might reduce your risk of hospitalization by you know three percent. That's you know from four percent down to one percent. If they still want that and your hospital has a program to administer it, 
you know, I guess I, I don't have a problem with people doing it. I just think when we're thinking about this as a public health, is this an option we really want to be promoting to the population? I think the constellation, the tr- marginal treatment effect, cost, difficulty administering is not something I'd want to do. And I'd certainly not want to do it in emergency departments, especially in the current state of emergency departments uh, around the country yes, where everybody's- boarding, staff It's shortage, a disaster. Right. It's a disaster, right? Yep. So if there's some clinic out there, the hospital wants to open a Monday through Friday satellite clinic, sure, refer these people over there. You got up to seven days to, to give it to them. So refer them over there and then let them figure it out. But I would not be, in, in fact, I very much am opposed to sort of incorporating this into an emergency medicine model of care. Edit this commentary. This is a report of a large trial of the Regen Cove monoclonal antibody cocktail for early COVID-19 in outpatients at risk for developing severe infections. At best, the trial shows a number needed to treat of 33 for the product to prevent one hospitalization. There is no evidence of a mortality benefit. The cost, difficulty administering, and relatively weak efficacy data combine to reduce my enthusiasm for this strategy. Paper number five, venous thromboembolism in patients discharged from the emergency department with ankle fractures, a population-based cohort study done by Graywall et al. And this was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. So we're getting rid of all those New England Journal of Medicines. We're done with uh, you. Yes. Back to our wheelhouse, our people. In the emergency department, we regularly manage multiple orthopedic injuries, fractures, dislocations, sprains, strains. This is our wheelhouse. Along these lines, we've got EM docs that are frequently splinting the non-operative injuries for immobilization until the outpatient follow-up can be obtained. You know, that short leg splint, follow up with your orthopedic surgeon as an outpatient in seven days. It's already known that immobilization of lower extremities is a risk factor for development of VTE. There's been incidences as high as 40% that have actually been reported. Given the simplicity of splinting, I think EM doctors would not routinely consider this type of short-term immobilization as a potential risk for VTE, but this raises a question of whether or not it would be beneficial to consider the risks of VTE and additionally consider prophylactically anticoagulating orthopedic injuries like fractures that are being temporarily immobilized. So this study aimed to better quantify what the 90-day risk of VTE was in patients with non-operative ankle fractures identified in the emergency department. This was a retrospective cohort study from the National Canadian Dataset, known as the National Ambulatory Care Reporting System. It's their administrative database that gives them access to a huge array of patients. And so for this study, they actually had access to 86,000 patients in Canada who were diagnosed with non-operative ankle fractures. So the patient population was fairly balanced, but look at most of the demographic. It was largely female, average age 49, no medical comorbidities. And then the outcomes that we looked at. So their primary outcome was essentially what percentage of patients got VTE. And then the secondary outcome looked at the percentage of patients that developed VTE with an associated lower extremity traumatic injury compared to those with an upper extremity traumatic injury. And then they further examined the potential individual risk factors that may predispose patients to developing VTE. Overall, the 90-day incidence of VTE in the ankle fracture group was something like 1.3%. So 1,000 patients out of that 86,000 that they looked at developed a VTE. In patients that did develop the VTE, identified risk factors were those that we're actually quite familiar with and often utilized when we're doing our risk stratification tools. 
It was patients that were older than 65, had a prior history of VTE, had recent hospital admission or surgery, or those who underwent subsequent surgery for that ankle fracture. It should be noted, though, that most of them were all found to have weak associations with development of VTE, except for prior history of VTE, which showed that it had a five-fold significance as a predisposing factor. And so when you look at the secondary outcomes with this, which were the 90-day incidence of VTE in lower extremity trauma compared to upper extremity trauma, it was 1.3% for lower extremity and 0.2% for those with upper extremity trauma. Both of those are quite low, but this study would suggest that the occurrence is more likely to happen in lower extremity injuries. Yeah, I think that's really important, actually, because when I initially saw this, I was concerned that what we're really talking about is a bunch of old people who are frail and who fell down and broke their leg. And it has nothing to do with the immobilization of their leg. It has everything to do with they were just old and, you know, had a history of VTE. And so if you just watch them anyway, they would do it. That's what I thought, too. Yeah. But here it looks like if you fall and you break your ankle, as opposed to you fall and you break your wrist, you're five times more likely to have a VTE, which would then suggest that it's actually probably something to do with the actual immobilization of the leg. Yes. And even more so if you've had a VTE for some reason in the past. Yep. Great research methods. I love it. I thought it was interesting because we do splint so much, especially in, in my community practice where I work sometimes. That is it, right? I don't really have the orthopedics that are rushing to go to surgery that day. We're splinting a ton of these and sending them out for follow-up. Did they say at all when they got their VTE? You know, that's a really good question. I don't recall seeing it directly in the results. Uh, Maybe have to go and chomp down on the tables a little bit closer. But where are you going with it? Why was that helpful? Oh, well, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, if they get their VTE on day 82, two out of 90, right? Because right. right? Like that's probably not our responsibility in the emergency department. If it's happening on week two or three, you know, well, maybe that's more something that is really, we need to be considering when we're seeing patients like this, particularly high risk patients. I'm just trying to, you know, take this into my next 70 year old with a broken ankle. Yeah, for sure. And that's definitely something that would probably lend itself if I had that information. I don't actually know that the paper had that information, but and it I would gotta say, I read the paper. Decision making. Yeah, I don't remember it being in there either. So, authors, Dr. Graywall et al., you know, you got yourself another companion publication if you haven't done it already. And if you have, well, apologies. Oh, we're not all as keen as you. <laughs> Editor's commentary. This was a retrospective population-based analysis examining the incidence of VTE in patients with non-operative ankle fractures. The overall incidence was low, but not negligible, at 1.5 to 2%. For most patients, forgoing anticoagulation seems wise, but there may be a subgroup of people at increased risk of VTE, namely those with prior history of thromboembolism, in whom anticoagulation may be considered. In these cases, prophylactic anticoagulation should be discussed in conjunction with orthopedic surgery for dispo planning. Abstract number six, the influence of the availability heuristic on physicians in the emergency department. And this is by Dr. Lee, not at all, just Dr. Lee, Lee. a single author. It's only the second paper. That's awesome. It's the only second paper I recall that was an actual study that was you know, as opposed to sometimes commentaries, of course, are, are single author, but the, this is the only second study I remember ever covering an EMA or paper chase that was by a single author. It's in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, and it's awesome study. 
Okay, right so on, Dr. Lee. Congratulations, Dr. Lee. So this is really interesting. It basically addresses the broad issue of how emergency physicians handle complex decision-making in our, you know, sort of fast-paced, multi-patient, easily distractible environment. So heuristics, we use those apparently. And they're sometimes called rules of thumb, and they're, they're basically cognitive shortcuts that we use in clinical medicine to help us make rapid decisions as opposed to, you know, sort of uh, the deductive part that requires tons of, you know, differential diagnosis generation and then all sorts of testing to rule out individual things. A lot of what we do is like doorway diagnosis. I, you know, that looks just like this. Yeah, with a little bit of muscle memory there. Right. So the availability heuristic, that's a heuristic suggests that we are heavily influenced by similar cases that are readily available in your mind. And you can probably, if you sort of like bend a little bit, you can probably hear yourself saying stuff like, I just had a case like this, right? And she had X or Y. Or and Z. that's what I'm going fishing for. And that's the availability uh, heuristic. That okay. You have some, some recollection, something that's re- so easy, to, it's right available to you. It's not hard. You don't have to dig in the recesses and the dusty cracks of your mind to figure out that one, right? Okay. So the problem with the availability heuristic in this approach is that things are typically available because they were either recent or highly emotional. Yeah, right? those bad outcomes. Your, right. Your exactly. first M&M. Right. And not because it's maybe the most common thing. That would be fine if the thing that was most available was the thing that was most common and the thing that was least available was the thing that's least common. But this availability heuristic distorts that and puts things up front that happened recently and puts things in the back that happened a while ago, even if the underlying epidemiology doesn't support that approach. How this influences us, particularly in emergency medicine, but even generally in medicine overall, is largely theoretic because there's just very few studies that look into these kinds of concepts. There's been a couple in medicine overall, but they typically use sort of vignettes. They give someone a vignette and then they say, oh, how does that influence things? There've been very little using real world data. So this study is really a first of its kind. And the author uses EHR data from the VA system to examine whether having a patient or diagnosing a patient recently with a pulmonary embolism influences that physician's testing rate for pulmonary embolism in the immediate phase after that. That makes sense? So you see somebody with a PE, you're like, darn, I didn't think that guy was going to have a PE. How does that influence your workup of the next patient you see with chest pain? Oh, that's such a good question. It's especially, great. It's especially for me as a junior faculty, I'm always like, oh, am I overscanning? Like, oh, well, no, the no. last tachycardic patient. Yeah, it's, it's way worse for us old, old timers <laughs> out here because we're like, I don't remember anything. The only thing I can remember is what I did yesterday. <laughs> So hopefully yesterday was reflective of tomorrow because otherwise we're all in a lot of trouble. (laughs) So over a 10-year period, this author identified 7,300 VA physicians who treated about 400,000 patients. The author then identified physician who diagnosed a PE at a given time, and then he tested the rate of testing for PE using either a D-dimer or a CT of the chest with contrast in the 60 days before they made that diagnosis and the 60 days after they made that diagnosis. And they broke it down by 10-day increments to just sort of see where the effects were, if there were any. And that's it. So the statistical model controlled for physician effects, hospital effects, and some clinical variables that were observable in the VA data set. Like, I think the VA, their data set can tell you if the patient had a prior history of cancer or a prior history of VTE. So he tried to calculate Wells scores 
for all these patients with what's observable in an administrative data set, which is to say like about half of the possible you know, variables into the well score. It was a valiant attempt. I give him credit. Overall, the mean patient age was 63. 90% were men. This is a VA study. 9% got a D-dimer. 4.5% got a CT. Just over 1% were diagnosed with a PE in the emergency department. That's the overall cohort. So now, in terms of the main point of the paper, the rate of testing increased from roughly about 9% in the pre-phase, so before that physician had made a diagnosis, to 10.5% in the post-phase, so which is a, about a 15% relative increase in testing for PE That's in the immediate. Yeah, it's a significant, I mean, it's statistically significant. It was a big study and all that kind of stuff. In looking at the graphs over that 60-day post period, what you see is that the effect was concentrated in the first 10 days. So literally, like I had a PE yesterday, or I diagnosed a PE yesterday, tomorrow I'm chasing PEs. And then it tended to dissipate after about 10 to 20 days and go back to a baseline. And again, you know, I think that's pretty cool. Now, this could be some recalibrating of your concern. Like you said, you're junior, right? You're like, okay, I haven't seen a case like this. Now I've seen one. Maybe I should read a little bit about it. Maybe I've been too cavalier about it um, and things like that. But I think that that's undermined, that argument that it's just a a normal recalibration is Mm -hmm. undermined by the fact that after two weeks, it drops back down. Uh, To their standard practice. Yeah, because if it was really a calibration, you would think like, I've done my reading, I've educated myself, now I know what to do, and I should have- this would be the practice moving forward. Going forward. forward. Okay. Uh, And that's not what happened. It went up and it dropped back down. So it tells me that it, I mean, I think that's a little bit of ancillary evidence that it is the availability heuristic. And after a couple of weeks, you forget about it, right? Because some other case comes up with the, the, the patient had a dissection. Well, now I'm chasing dissections or they had an MI or they had a, you know, a belly aneurysm or something. Now I'm chasing those. So an availability heuristic, just to get this clear, is not synonymous with pattern recognition. No, it's, it's part of a, probably a broader constellation. It's part of the family of things called cognitive shortcuts. Right, things that allow you to make quick diagnoses. And pattern recognition obviously is like one of the main things we do, right? We just sort of look right. at stuff. And that's why yeah. I was curious yeah. about it because I would feel like, you know, yeah, after you, you see that patient, you get that diagnosis, like, oh, this is my first BE. And right. then moving forward, are my decisions now based on pattern recognition or is it based on me being biased by the first PE? Right. That I found? Well, but again, that, I think if it was like you're, you've seen, like, okay, now I've recognized this pattern a bunch of times. That should be your new practice. That oh, shouldn't be right. temporarily the related. Off. Right. The drop-off is what says that, that there's availability heuristic. I have no doubt that part of the way this works is through pattern recognition and stuff like that. This study, its unique contribution is sort of talking about that availability heuristic and how that seems to cause a temporary spike in, in testing and then fall off. So anyway, I, I applaud the author for injecting some empirical work into this, what's been largely a theoretic sort of clinical decision-making space, how to fix it, how to deal with this availability heuristic, mm. and which cases are the most likely to cause unusual spikes in your decision-making, and you know which kinds of circumstances that actually produces patient harm, right? Like That's not addressed at all in this paper. And there's a lot of stuff that's out there, again, theoretically talking about how to overcome some of these cognitive biases and these sort of heuristics when they're out right. there. That's beyond the scope of this discussion. 
But like I said, it's a really great paper. It's a really interesting thing. I don't think we're stunned by the results, right? That we we sort of know that and we've all heard ourselves saying that and like, I can't miss two of these things right. this in a row. I'm, I'm frequently know. in denial about that, but yeah. it's true. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and I guess, you know, knowledge is the first step sort towards, you know, recovery or something. Thank so you. it's pretty interesting. So Dr. Lee, great job. I think it's a fantastic study and really informative. Editor's commentary. This excellent EHR study from the VA demonstrates that physician diagnostic testing for pulmonary embolism increases in the 10 days after that physician diagnoses an unrelated patient with pulmonary embolism. Over a short period of time, this dissipates. This is indirect evidence that the availability heuristic has an outsized role in diagnostic testing and calls for physicians to be more aware of this cognitive bias and develop strategies to mitigate against them. Paper number seven, fixed versus variable dosing of prothrombin complex concentrate for bleeding complications of vitamin K antagonists, the proper three randomized clinical trial. This paper was done by Dr. Abdoakon. I don't know. I don't know, Dr. Abdul. I would say Abdul... Abdoelakan, but hey, okay. what do I know? My apologies. This is like the, the the Mab situation. I don't. I might have just. We might have just I been know, really offensive. In that. We're trying. I We're feel trying. horrible about because yeah. when you get your paper published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, I've got to get the name right. Yeah, they should have that on the paper, like on the link, like a, a the author pronunciation of their own name. Yeah. that seems like an easy thing to do. Annals editors, yeah. so that we don't pop, pop butcher MP3 you know, in there for yeah. us. Yes. So this was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. And essentially, in the United States, we are more frequently using four-factor PCC to reverse bleeds for patients on vitamin K antagonists like Coumadin. In general, we're following the pharmaceutical guidelines, which is to use the patient's INR and weight to determine appropriate dosing of this medication. That's in the manufacturer's guide for these things. Right. So that's the the variable dosing of, and what is like, that's what, if you yeah. look it up on the, the case centro website that, exactly. so that's, how you that's do. what they recommend yeah. for you to do yeah. and so although there are these societal recommendations encouraging the use of pcc for anticoagulation reversal there aren't any specific guidelines for the optimal dosing so we know to use it it works but as far as are we sticking to this weight-based dosing or that the manufacturer recommends this is what's coming into question and there's been very little data to say whether or not there are alternative dosing options that would be equally efficacious and simpler, faster, and potentially cheaper. Because these little vials are not cheap as far as I understand. Is that yeah, right? I think they're at least $1,000 a vial, which I think is like 1,000 units. At least. I mean, you know, that's the like wholesale cost if you get it out of a van in the back, you know? If you get If you get the... The fancy, you know, brand, no, they're all branded, but yeah, I know they're, it's very expensive. I think usually we think of full reversal costing three or $4,000. Gosh. All right. Well, let's see if this paper saves us some money. So the study evaluates two dosing strategies for anticoagulation reversal. It asks basically in patients with non-intracranial hemorrhage, so extracranial bleeds instead, that are on vitamin K antagonists that require reversal with four-factor PCC. Is the fixed dose regimen of 1,000 units non-inferior to the standard therapy, which is the weight-based dosing that incorporates INR that we all know? So this was a multi-center RCT non-inferiority study examining a population of about 199 patients who were on a vitamin K antagonist 
and who had a bleed that required reversal. And there was extracranial. Extracranial bleeds only. I want to keep hammering in on that point. Yeah. Because I think the intracranial bleeds you're still supposed to use. I don't think we have data. Uh Right. You're supposed to use the the weight weight basis. So this was done in six large Dutch teaching hospitals. It excluded intracranial hemorrhage. Again, hammering that point home. The general patient population consisted primarily of males with average age 78 with non-visible bleeds. There were roughly 80 patients in each group after the randomization, and exclusions were accounted for. So the groups were separated into an intervention group, which was the group that got a fixed dose of 1,000 units of PCC, compared to a control group, which utilized the standard weight-based dosing regimen. And primary outcomes they looked at were whether effective hemostasis was achieved, and secondarily looked at how long it took for the INR to be reversed, which was defined as an INR less than two. So overall, effective hemostasis was achieved in 87% of patients in the fixed dose group compared to 89.9% in the standard weight-based dose group. So pretty similar. Pretty the, close. The fixed dose, even though, well, you'll tell us, I assume, what the variable dose was, right? Because the fixed dose was 1,000. How much yes. did the other guys get? So the variable doses was anywhere from 15 to 1,700, I believe. So within about the same range, fairly close. Achieving hemostasis was considered visible bleeding that stopped within four hours. For MSK bleeds, it was considered effective when pain was reduced and the swelling improved within 24 hours. And for these non-visible bleeds that I pointed out that made up a majority of the demographic, it was considered effective hemostasis if the hemoglobin level did not decrease more than 10% at 48-hour H&H recheck compared to your baseline presentation. And I presume that that's like, that means a, a GI bleed. Right. right. I mean, you can't see it directly. So, okay. Can't see so you it, just got to follow you know those hemoglobin. There. <laughs> yes. Those groups were pretty evenly matched as far as effective hemostasis. And then, when looking at the INR reversal, which was their secondary outcome, happened within 60 minutes in both groups, both 91%. And so, it should be noted that 5% more patients in the fixed dose group needed redosing or additional agents like vitamin K or FFP for hemostatic control compared to only 1% in the weight-based group that didn't need frequent redosing. And really, the limitation to this study that was notable was that it was ultimately terminated early due to an inability to enroll enough patients to power the study. And this was just from slow recruitment overall. Yeah, I saw that their study ended in January of 2020. And they don't say specifically if that was a COVID phenomena or not, but there were a lot of studies that stopped in like sort of the end of <laughs> yeah. January 2020. Yeah. So we've seen this kind of thing a lot where, you know, it's just like, hey guys, we're never going to be able to enroll people <laughs> now that COVID has hit. So I don't know if that was the driver of that slowed enrollment, but who knows. All right. And so overall, I mean, it showed that, you know, both strategies did achieve effective hemostasis, but non-inferiority was not demonstrated. In and that's a sample size problem. Yeah. Right. The only thing that I that kind of left me questioning with this was why the researchers used the thousand units. You know, uh, why not two thousand? Yeah, I, I don't know. There's been a few studies like out there that have used that sort of thing or retrospective analyses. My guess is that the the stuff comes in five hundred or one thousand unit vials. So they're like, well, okay, what do we use? You know, let's use one big vial right. and see what happens. <laughs> 
I mean, that's that. I think it's probably something totally practical like that, you know. And it's got to be. Yeah, and if the, if it doesn't reverse it, we'll give them another vial. That's <laughs> you know? kind of how I felt when the nurses asked me about ketamine. They're like, yeah. "Well, you know, it comes in a 150 vial. Can we just drop the 150 when yeah. I'm trying to use my weight based yeah. dosing?" So, and you're like, "Yeah, sure, whatever." Like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, no, I think that's probably it. I mean, yeah, I don't remember them specifically saying, but you know what, you know what their logic was. But I think that that's probably it. At least then you only have to buy one vial. And maybe from the cost effectiveness standpoint, that's where that seems to be, I guess, the biggest significance here is when I'm looking at interpreting this or how mm -hmm. I interpret this. Sure. Because overall, it did not show non-inferiority. We had equally matched time to INR reversals, decently effective hemostasis. I guess the only other thing to consider, even if I'm trying to be cost effective, is that 5% of patients did need redosing or mm -hmm. escalation to alternatives. Right, but that's a relatively small number. You know, this is a very interesting study, and it's I'm glad someone's finally done something prospective and randomized to help us because we've seen this kind of stuff in the literature. You usually worry, you know, that like, yeah, the people who got the fixed dose, the little fixed dose, weren't very sick, and the people who got variable dosing were the sick ones, and so the treatment effect is due to that and not due to the right. dosing sizes. But here, randomized data says they look pretty much same same. For me, this is probably good enough. For um, you know, somebody who's not about to die, if they were really hemorrhaging like crazy and their INR was really high, you know, like greater than six or ten, I'd probably at this point still give the variable dose. But if it's like uh, they've got some melanin and their hemoglobin's okay, and we're gonna transfuse, I'd probably start with a fixed dose and then just see how you do. And if it, you know, if things don't drop, then don't worry about it. Right. If, if things drop more, then you know, redose. And I consider it. I was also thinking about, you know, are MRAP users that come from like the critical access areas or areas that have limited resources where that might be considered an adequate option, if you, mm -hmm. especially if you don't have a lot of vials readily available to you. Yeah, you're worried about using the only one you do. Yeah. Editor's commentary. This was a multicenter RCT evaluating effective hemostasis in INR reversal in extracranial hemorrhage for patients on vitamin K antagonists using a fixed-dose PCC strategy compared to variable weight-based dosing. The study was underpowered. While the fixed-dose compared to variable dosing strategy achieved effective hemostasis, non-inferiority was not demonstrated for patients with severe extracranial bleeding. It may be an adequate option in settings with limited resources, but more research is needed. Also, when considering using this strategy, clinicians should be aware that the need for additional redosing is possible. Abstract number eight. Evaluation of the patients with flank pain in the emergency department by modified stone score. This is by Bahadirli et al. in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. It's yet another study purporting to look at how clinical scoring schemes possibly reduce or could reduce the use of CT scanning for patients with suspected nephrolithiasis. In this case, the authors examine how the modified STONE score fares. The STONE score, if you'll remember, includes variables, it's actually not very many variables, but includes gender, duration of pain, presence of nausea and or vomiting, hematuria on dipstick, and race as its sort of variables that tell you how STONE likely one is or is not. The modified STONE score gives points for gender, duration of pain, prior history of stone, and a CRP less than five. So I don't it's a pretty modified score. Yeah, and I like the sound of that is using more objective measures. I feel like when I first learned about the stone score, probably, yeah. 
the component of race was always the one that questioned as far as like the predisposition yeah. to and why that was necessary to report. But. Yeah, well, some, you know, the thing is that you do these database analyses, you know, that's how you develop these things and it just pops out. Right. It could have been shoe size, but it was race and that captures a whole lot of other stuff. And, you know, like race tracks along with so many other determinants of health that, you know, it often pops out of models, but then of course it doesn't really make any sense, right? <laughs> so it's like, you know, so it's like right. you know, if you want to ask somebody about like their prior history of uh, you know, sort of not having access to healthcare, maybe you should ask that. But, right. Yeah. I always just find that interesting because sure. it's like, well, ethnicity is actually the appropriate thing that you uh, would want to consider. Maybe. I like the uh, modified version. Yeah. So the authors assert that the modified stone score has not been as extensively studied, and I think that's generally true. Just like in my you know reading a lot of literature, I saw a lot about stone scores. I haven't seen too much about this modified stone score. In this study, the authors look at how this is related to CT-proven or disproven diagnosis of stone and other important pathology. So the study is apparently, unfortunately, it's just not very well written up. There's like some technical stuff that makes it kind of hard to understand, but it's apparently a prospective multi-center observational study done in Turkey. Eligible patients had to have a chief complaint of flank pain and get a CT scan. Basically, then they asked the on-duty physician to fill out a form that had the modified stone score variables on it, but also other variables, some other stuff they were interested in, and the CT report. Like, was there hydronephrosis? How big was the stone, et cetera? So they didn't look at the report themselves. They had the attending physician who was sort of doing treatment on these folks give them the CT report, which sometimes induces some biases and whatnot. They then calculated the modified stone score and characterized each patient as low, moderate, or high risk according to the modified stone score and determined what the stone rate was for each of those categories. And then importantly, they looked for each of those categories and said, well, okay, here's the stone rate. What about other stuff that was important on the CT like that other was pathology? identified? Other pathology, yeah. They had uh, 1,100 patients with flank pain that were enrolled. 367 got a scan, so that's the study cohort. 73% of those had a stone, and 10% of them had significant other findings. Probably not surprisingly, the higher the modified stone score, the higher the stone rate. So what that means is that 96% of those with a high modified stone score had a stone. 96%, very, very high number. 50% of those with a moderate modified stone score had a stone, and only 6% of those with a low score had a stone. The rate of important alternative diagnoses went in exactly the opposite direction. So only 1% of those with a high modified stone score had an alternative diagnosis. 96% of them had a stone. And then 42% of those with a low modified stone score actually had an important alternative diagnosis. And those things included, some of them were really important, like appendicitis and cholecystitis. And then some of them were like cholelithiasis and things like that. And it was a little hard to tell, you know, exactly where those fit into the whole thing. This study has a ton of limitations, including that it appears that, you know, these physicians reported the modified stone score and the CT, and that, again, increases the chance of incorporation bias. The biggest problem, I think, is that we really don't know what happened to the three quarters of the patients who came in with flank pain and didn't get a CT scan, right? They just... 
They didn't get oh, one at all. Yes. Were yeah. they just diagnosed like clinically with? We potential? don't know what they did with them. Uh, we have no idea. But they, they included them in the. They just talk about it. So in theory, if the clinicians were using the modified stone score to decide whether or not to get a scan on those patients, we would absolutely need to know what their outcomes were in uh, order to yeah. interpret how good the modified stone score did. So it's a weird subset of people that they've used the modified stone score on, but apparently didn't use it to decide whether or not to get a CT scan because they all got a CT scan. So it's a kind of a weird population to mm. really think about. It happens all the time that we see this kind of stuff. So I do think that basically the authors get the conclusion right, which is that you don't need to scan people at high risk for a stone based on like either the modified stone score or your clinical impressions. Like this person is like severe acute flank pain, 32 years old, got some hematuria on the dipstick. I think that person you probably don't need to scan. And I think that this data is like maybe moves the needle a little bit in that direction, but that issue that I already discussed, you know, sort of lingers large. And of course, it matters whether or not there's an alternative diagnosis on your differential that you think is particularly likely. Because if you, this person has a high stone score and there's nothing really on your differential, you know, he's again, 32 years old, you're not worried he has a ruptured AAA, then, you know, don't scan him. This strategy eventually fails because when a patient comes back, right? So a patient comes mm-hmm. back, it's been two weeks, you know, they're still having severe flank pain, their CRP is still low. I mean, I think at that point, they've been given a trial of passage and they failed it. So right. you probably got to scan yeah, those people scan those at that sure. point to see like maybe they actually need a urologic intervention or something like that. But I think the general point that they're saying here is if it looks like a stone, smells like a stone, and there's no reason to be particularly worried about anything else forego the CT scan, there's very high probability that it's going to be positive. You might as well just not do it. And then on the alternative is, if it doesn't sound like a stone and you're worried about something else, certainly you should be scanning those patients. Editor's commentary. This moderate quality study confirms that high modified stone score appears to be highly predictive of stone diagnosis and unlikely to represent an alternative important diagnosis. Such patients can probably forego CT scanning and have a trial of spontaneous passage. CT scanning in the ED can be reserved for more atypical cases in whom alternative important diagnoses are more likely and or those who have failed to pass the apparent stone spontaneously. All right, let's keep talking about stones. Paper number nine, does early intervention improve outcomes for patients with acute ureteral colic? by Dr. Ines et al., published in CGEM. So we know that patients with kidney stones present to the ED in a lot of distress. We've all seen that diaphoretic young man that's doubled over in pain. And although we know that spontaneous passage in most cases is pretty common and they've just got to tough it out and we try to support them the best that we can, it's really kind of hard for physicians to sit back and watch your patient in distress. So there's that altruistic feeling of wanting to expedite pain relief and and alleviate the stress there. Although there are guidelines that point out that the rates of spontaneous passages are actually as high as 90%, something like 60 to 90%. More patients are being referred to urology for early stone removal with the belief that the eradication reduces patient morbidity, recurrent ED visits, and complications that require hospitalization. There is limited research examining this early surgical intervention, so there are no real standardizing guidelines for decisions on which patients need this or which patients benefit from early stone removal. And so as a result, you see a lot of variations in practice patterns. 
So this study evaluates two management strategies for patients presenting with renal colic and looks to determine whether it is better to have early surgical intervention compared to that expected management in hopes of spontaneous passage. So it was a Canadian multi-center propensity match cohort study using a chart review to look at patients that had the ICD-10 diagnosis of renal colic. You know, these big Canadian multi-center studies cover a lot of hospitals. These were nine hospitals in two cities and looked at a population of 3,000 patients total. But after this fancy propensity matching analysis, they ended up only matching and evaluating 1,154 patients. Just to pause for a second there, I want to go to the great Dr. Mentine. Just kind of break it down for the users, not me, maybe, maybe me, as far as this propensity matched methodology that they used. Yeah. uh, So we've seen over the years, this is a pretty common, I actually think yeah, we had a propensity score already. The VTE one from earlier was propensity match, I oh, think. Oh, they didn't say it like that. It threw yeah, me off. <laughs> I know. This one scared you a little more. No, it's, we know that people are going to be different between who gets referred for urology and who doesn't. Right. Mostly that's going to be due to, you know, one has a huge stone, one doesn't. So it's not fair to compare them directly and say, let's just look at the cohort that got a urologic evaluation, look at the cohort that didn't, and compare their outcomes. The ones who got a urologic referral are obviously going to do poorer because they were sicker, they had bigger stones, they were old, we were really worried about them, et cetera. So it's not fair to do that. So we have to do some matching strategy to try to make the cohorts sort of look a little more like each other. In, in propensity matching, what you do is you match them on their chance of getting a stone. And you do that through a mathematical model and you plug in all the variables and you go, look, a 32-year-old you know, man with a two millimeter stone has a 10% chance of you know, being referred to urology. A 70-year-old man with, you know, a a 0.5 millimeter stone, teensy stone, also has a 10% chance of being sent to urology based on our existing data. We Mm. use our own data to solve that. So then we go down the list and we go, let me find somebody who had a 10% chance of being referred to urology, who was referred, right? He only had Mm. 10%, but he was referred. And another person who had 10% chance of being referred and wasn't referred. And that way, they're matched on their chance of being sent to urology. Oh, not their demographic. Right. No, it's, it's their chance of being sent to urology. And then you look at the outcomes between the two. And since they had the same chance of being sent to urology, what we're pretending is one was randomly sent to urology and the other one was randomly not. And so it's a, it. it's a way okay. to eliminate selection bias. It's not a perfect way. We know that there's other factors that aren't in the data that drive a lot of decision-making about mm-hmm. whether you sense and someone looked very sick and you, you can't capture that very well in data that they, the doc was just very concerned about this one and not very concerned about this one. But it's a legitimate, statistically modern way of trying to handle this problem of selection bias, or in this case, kind of sort of referral bias, if you will. That makes sense. Thank you for breaking that down for us. And so using this methodology, actually, they balanced the groups pretty good. There was 577 patients in each group. Most of the patients in the study were middle-aged men with distal stones, about five millimeters was the average, no hydronephrosis. And all the patients had to have a CT-proven kidney stone anywhere between two to nine millimeters to be eligible. So they broke it down into two groups. The intervention group were those that required surgery within five days of your initial ED visit. So someone referred them to get a thing done early. Right. Versus the control group, those who trialed the spontaneous passage. 
those who had no intervention up until that five-day mark. The primary outcome they looked at were failed treatment, which they defined as those who needed rescue intervention or hospitalization over the next 60 days. And I was, rescue intervention is somebody went after it, surgical. Secondary outcome was the rate of urinal colic-related ED revisits within 60 days. So overall, the intervention group had similar rates of treatment failure, but higher rates of post-procedural morbidity like hospitalizations and ED revisits. So those that went for early surgical intervention actually were more likely to come through the emergency department with a post-procedural complaint or issue and were more likely to be hospitalized. And equally likely to require another procedure downstream. Right. Yeah. And so approximately 19% of the patients in the intervention group required rescue intervention compared to the control group, which was a 21%. And Within that intervention group, with those higher rates of that post-procedural morbidity, a lot of the sequelae that it pointed out were things like infection, post-op bleeding, stent pain, or an incomplete stone removal that required repeat surgical intervention. Yeah, so this is pretty interesting stuff. I mean, it's not a randomized controlled trial or anything, but it's pointing to like we should not be we should be telling patients don't go to urology. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like give it a give it a chance, you know, because. Otherwise, you're guaranteed to get a procedure. That's what they did. And you're equally likely to have to have a second procedure as you were to have a first procedure in the first group. Yeah. So when and- I look at that, it's, it makes me want to not actually refer people to urology. Yeah. I know that stones are painful, but it seems like just optimizing the pain control, encouraging them about staying hydrated and letting them know that 90% of the time... It's small and it's distal and they're otherwise healthy. They're going to do just fine. Yeah. I've always thought that this approach is the right way. It's never made sense to me that like, oh, I have a three millimeter stone. It's so painful. It's like, okay, let's go to urology where they're going to put a foot long uh, coil into your kidney and drain it into your bladder and leave it there for three months. Yeah. (laughs) Why would that be better than having a three millimeter stone? And I'm sure you've probably seen it. The patient that gets lost to follow up and ends up with this with a nephrosity. They're like, yeah, of course. Like, why would it make any sense that if you have a relatively small stone, you know, that having a big old piece of plastic stuck up there would be less painful. It just doesn't make any sense at all. So I, you know, this always made sense to me. I'm glad the data is starting to show that a little bit better. Yeah, it supports just encouraging the spontaneous passage. Like I said, small stone, distal stone, no hydro. Be reassured by the fact that your patient will get through this. Editor's commentary. This was a relatively large propensity match cohort study comparing patients with nephrolithiasis who underwent early surgical intervention to those who had expected management with anticipated spontaneous passage. Overall, there was a similar rate of failed treatment resulting in rescue intervention. It was notable that there was a higher rate of post-procedural morbidity, like hospitalizations and ED revisits, in those patients who received early surgical management, highlighting that early stone removal is not without its risks, including procedural sequelae. Number 10, early computed tomography coronary angiography, CTCA, In patients with suspected acute coronary syndrome, randomized controlled trial by Gray et al. in the British Medical Journal. So this study looks at the use of CTCA for patients from the ED with suspected acute coronary syndrome. And I think it's a little bit timely, actually. 
CTCA, I don't even know if you remember this, but it was all the rage about a decade ago. Back in the day. Back in the day. <laughs> when we were stuck dealing with the literally millions of patients presenting to the ED with relatively low risk chest pain and no way to safely exclude MI in those patients. There just wasn't a proven way to send them home. And instead, we'd do all sorts of crazy provocative testing, stress treadmills, dobutamine echoes, etc., that often took greater than 24 hours to perform. CTCA emerged in that environment. It was shown to decrease ED length of stay for sort of those kinds of patients, but at a pretty significant cost in that it actually costs more. There's like dollar sign cost, but also it results in a lot of angiograms. You go looking in there and you see all these calcified coronaries and then people are like, oh, I got to go do a real angio. So you mm -hmm. take these low-risk people and now they're getting angiograms. So it, it, it never really caught on quite right. And, and that's part of the reason. In the subsequent decade, two major advancements have occurred. One is more sensitive troponin assays have, have come out, right? So I'm not even talking necessarily about high sensitivity troponins, but even just the more sensitive ones, the ones that go down to 0.01, as opposed mm -hmm. to the ones when I was training that were at like the cutoff level was 0.3. That's true. It was 0.3. So, you know, getting much further down the troponin assays and then things like the heart score and some of its, you know, sort of competitor scoring schemes have emerged that have given us the confidence to send folks home with negative enzymes and without provocative testing. In this current context, it's not known how CTCA might affect patient care. So the authors here conducted a multi-center randomized control trial of patients at intermediate risk of ACS. Intermediate risk. So to qualify, the patients had to be in the ED for suspected ACS, and they had to have either positive troponins, abnormal ECG, and or previous history of coronary disease. So this is not your like, you know, person with vague hypertension with a relatively normal EKG and, and you know, negative enzymes. This mm. is somebody mm. who's like, you know, they're leaking troponin or they've got some ST segment changes or T wave inversions that you don't like. So potentially those that would have like a moderate heart score. Yeah. So these aren't the ones that you should, you know, that we would be sending home by ourselves, generally speaking. They were then randomized to standard care versus early immediate CTCA. But the CTCA was not necessarily performed in the ED. Most of these patients got it. It looked like they got it like up on a ward or a cardiac observation unit. Between 2015 and 2019, they enrolled just under 1,800 patients. The mean age was 60, 64% men. And the study was performed in England. Those randomized to CTCA got it on average within about four hours. The scan was of good diagnostic quality in just over 90% of those cases. And that was an issue originally with CTCA is because of timing of contrast infusion and how it has to get into the coronary arteries. There was a high risk of getting those you know, sort of non-diagnostic studies. But I guess they've worked out all those protocols now so that, you know, the diagnostic study happens and you get a, a legit study 90% of the time. Very few patients in the usual care group actually ended up getting a CTCA. So there wasn't like a lot of crossover. The primary outcome was major adverse cardiac events within one year. And the really key secondary outcome was how many in each group got a cath and or revascularized. In terms of the primary outcome, the rate of MACE was the same in both groups. 5.8 in the CCTA group, 6.1 in the standard of care group. So it didn't seem like, you know, CCTA produced worse outcomes or better outcomes overall in terms of your having an MI within the next year. 54% of those patients who got a CCTA ended up getting an angiogram. So it's, this is a you know, very high number of all those patients that were referred for CCTA 
half of them got angio. And that was compared to 61% of the group in the standard of care that got the standard of care treatment. It's somewhat surprising that the CCTA group actually had a lower angio rate than the standard of care group. And that actually, that difference, that 6% difference was statistically significant. Interestingly, though, the proportion who actually ended up getting a PCI or a cabbage, so who got revascularized, was the same in both groups. It was 33%. Patients and physicians, they did a little survey of patients and how much they liked the strategy and how much physicians liked the strategy, tended to prefer the CCTA strategy over usual care, which involves stress tests and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But it was fairly modest differences between the two. They did not do anything to evaluate length of stay, cost, or radiation exposure. So these results seem to show that in a group of fairly high-risk patients, remember a third of them ended up getting a PCI, the CTCA strategy was effective and did not result in more angiograms than the standard approach. For us in the ER, I think this is interesting to know about, and we may see some renewed interest in this modality going forward. However, I would caution that this is really for cardiology and inpatient medicine to deal with. These are not the cases that we should be managing alone. And these results could be very different if they were applied to low-risk ED patients and would likely result in many more invasive angios without any additional clinical benefit. So if you're going to be thinking about this, for me, CTCA means sort of admit or cardiology right. consult. Part like of that's part of the ACS That's part of that, that part of the workup, not part of the ED evaluation of does this person need a real ACS workup? Okay, so this isn't testing that I'm doing to try to get the patient to go home or be discharged. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I think <laughs> okay. that if I think if you do it in low risk patients like that, or you know, people who you think are most likely going to go home, don't need an angio, aren't going to need a cath or or a you know a PCI or something like that. If you do it in those lower risk people, you're going to scan a lot of hearts, you're going to see a bunch of calcium scores, and you're going to end up sending unnecessarily high number of them to be admitted, mm. to have angios, and have all of those kind of complications from angios without any benefit in the rate of major adverse coronary events. And that's, that's what happened before. So we need to be really careful not to use this and take this data to mean, oh, we should be doing CTCAs on all the patients in the ER with chest pain. Editor's commentary. This large multicenter study of ED patients at moderate or higher risk for ACS, the strategy involving early CTCA resulted in slightly fewer angiograms, but otherwise similar clinical outcomes compared with a usual care strategy. These results go against earlier CTCA studies, which showed that they resulted in a higher rate of angiography, likely reflecting study population risk overall. This CTCA-based strategy should be reserved for higher-risk patients and probably only in consultation with inpatient medicine and or cardiology. Paper number 11, Emergency Cricothyrotomy in Morbid Obesity, Comparing the Bougie-Guided and Traditional Techniques in a Live Animal Model. This was done by authors Driver et al. and published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. All right, so we get into my favorite stuff, procedures. So the crike. Oh, yeah, the, the crike of the obese neck, that's your favorite stuff. That's <laughs> yes, mine too, mine too. Well, I if mean- we're working on shift together someday and there's some guy who can't, can't ventilate, can't oxygenate with a neck the size of a, you know, of a football or oh something like that, I'm going to be like, Whitney, you know, I'm going to go get lunch right now. You got this. 
Hey, and shout out to where I trained UCSF Fresno as the Fresno Fluffy. Oh. So we've got the morbidly obese patients and we're procedure heavy. So I've done probably more cracks than I should have, to be honest, in residency. But um, but we know, like even just having this exchange, right? The cricothyroidomy is a stressful procedure, usually done, like you said, and that can't intubate, can't ventilate instance, or when there are some other contributors that are causing a significantly difficult airway. It's become more rare as physicians have become pretty facile with our airway adjuncts, LMAs, eye gels, and we have more technologically advanced tools for intubation, glidoscope, fiber optic. The procedure can only be made more complicated by patients that have difficult anatomy, like the impalpable structures, like in this study with the morbidly obese. We know an open technique rather than a percutaneous technique is recommended by the Difficult Airway Society because it's faster and more reliable, but there haven't been any guidelines on which open technique is best. So this study actually took a look at the most optimal technique to perform a cricothyrotomy on patients where the anatomical structures were not easily palpated, such as those in the morbidly obese population. It was a prospective randomized comparison study done over a two-year time period at a residency program. So it evaluated 23 EM residents, PGY1 through PGY3, who were performing cricothyrotomies using live sheep that had additional blood and saline injected into their anterior neck to simulate the morbidly obese patient. Yeah, so just take that in, everybody. That's awesome. They took these sheep, (laughs) and then they took some of these sheep's own blood Mixed it with saline and then injected like a ton of it subcutaneously. I don't know how much exactly, but they said that. Oh, yeah. It was a lot. It was enough to make a depth of three centimeters. Yeah. Like, so from the skin to the cricothyroid membrane was three centimeters. That's that's a lot of tissue. Yeah. And these are like anesthetized sheep. To further stimulate, they're like sleeping sheets, but that were still alive. Yeah, and it yeah. was like to simulate the urgency of needing to get and, and the, the tube. Yeah. And the, the increased bleeding that could potentially happen. Yeah. So they really actually set it up so that these residents no, were like pressure cookers. This is an impressive intervention. It's a, a very impressive study, one we probably won't see replicated anytime soon. Right. I was yeah. like, what kind of sim lab? I know. It's pretty <laughs> so, intense. So the residents were randomly sorted to perform one of these two techniques. They were either going to be doing the traditional technique that uses a, a shyly trach, no bougie, or the alternative technique where you use a bougie guiding technique and an ET tube. And so they would get to watch an instructional video just once, ask any follow-up questions, and then perform this procedure using one of those techniques. And so they looked at the total time it took to complete the procedure and successfully intubate, as well as the secondary outcome they looked at was the percentage of first attempt success thing that was most notable here was that residents could only attend this lab once per year. So I feel like there's definitely needed to be a consideration for the fact that a first-year resident, this is the only time you got to do this. That's even more of a stressful situation in that regard. And there's, in general, a lack of experience there. And when looking at the speed of the procedure, like a PGY1 compared to a senior resident would obviously show some difference. But also, just in thinking about that compared to an attending level, which is where you're more likely to do this when you're out in the community starting to practice by yourself. Overall, though, looking at the results, so the overall average time it took to complete the procedure was 183 seconds in the traditional technique group 
compared to 118 seconds in the group that utilized the bougie guided technique. So 60, 70, 80 seconds less, a whole minute less. That's a lot less. Right. Frankly, three minutes to do that procedure that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know when they started long. their clock. Uh, but usually when I'm thinking about cranking someone, I'm not thinking, oh, I need an airway in three minutes. I'm thinking, I need an airway like three minutes ago. Right. <laughs> so exactly. Minutes do matter here. I do think. But that, and that is, does highlight one of these issues, which is like, you know, if they had to go super fast, would this make the difference between these two times bigger or would it make it smaller? You know what I mean? Like, you know, like. Right. If, oh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, I don't, you know, here they probably they got an anesthetized sheep and they're probably like, okay, we want to move quickly, but, you know, we want you to do it right and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So, anyway, it, you know, it's, it's the learning environment. Yeah, it's a minor sure. point. but Yeah. It's, and they did have a few that I noticed in the, in the table that needed the, I think it was only one or two. Again, small study. There's mm-hmm. only 12 in each group, but they had like one or two that needed the attending bailout because the sheep was dying. Yeah. So. Oops, <laughs> yeah. So the secondary outcome that they looked at was the first attempt success rate, which is also important information because when you're in that can't intubate, can't ventilate, you kind of need to get the tube in and get it in quick and hopefully on the first yeah. attempt. In being the operative. Yeah. Right. <laughs> get the tube. So looking at those rates, 50% of residents in the traditional group got it on first attempt compared to 64% that got it in the bougie group. Yeah, but those numbers are small. I mean- there's only six or seven people. Right. Yeah, exactly. So um, the results, even though they're small, suggest that the bougie guided technique was more likely to ensure success, especially in those early learners. And so to me, that, that kind of makes sense because we are using tools in that bougie guided technique that we're fairly familiar with. How often do we use a bougie and ET tube compared to a Shiley and, you know, whatever else they use for the standard? So that one thing makes me think like, okay, that makes sense to me. I use the bougie all the time. And then the same thing along the lines of the approach to that technique, even though crikes are rare procedures, there are so many other procedures that we do where we use the Seldinger technique or that guide wire Mm -hmm. approach, which is how I envision the bougie guided technique as well. Get the bougie in, can almost do it blindly and then pass the tube directly over and you've got kind of that safe space for Mm -hmm. overall limitations to the study that the authors actually acknowledge were that they used animal models, obviously, so how that compares to human patients. They tried to simulate anatomy as best as possible. but And of those residents enrolled, 78% had prior experience doing a cricothyrotomy. And most of them were senior residents who had done the lab you know, the years prior. But there was a lack of generalizability here. So the times, I think, would not necessarily correspond to those performing the procedure for the first time. And then again, the operators were resident level. So the lack of overall experience kind of makes this hard to translate that information into the community setting for a practicing attending who you would think would would assume the procedure would potentially be faster. The times might be faster in that case. Yeah, I never know. You know, I mean, it's during residency, you have intense training on crikes. And then you go out in the community and you never have to do it. So, you know, I mean, yeah, it's so that, unless you're oh, that's true. being very diligent with your CME and attending airway labs and stuff like that. I've, I don't know. I feel like uh, I definitely was at peak criking capability about a year or two after residency and it has tapered. Oh, so you're not then. using your CME to go to the airway labs in Hawaii and get- I haven't been able to, tra- <laughs> yeah, I haven't been able to do it. I mean, you know, I feel, I actually feel very comfortable with crikes, um, but I feel a lot less comfortable than I did 
15 years ago. Right. Yeah. Well, and that brings up the case, yeah. the point of like, you know, doing it at USC level one trauma center yeah. compared to, you know, out in the middle of nowhere in you a know, smaller community shop would also be stressful. It's interesting. I, I worked a conference coverage last week on Thursday morning, you know, and so there's no residents. And I had a guy that needed to be intubated and he was, he wasn't super complicated intubation, but we didn't have like good monitoring because he was like all diaphoretic and, you know, all that kind of was going crazy and all this kind of stuff. And I went to go intubate him. It's like the first person I've personally intubated by myself in like a two years. That's awesome. Two years, right? And because we're at the center we are and there's a lot of people around, like when I went to intubate this guy, I had an audience of like 800 people. <laughs> now, none of them were my residents, which was good. Um, and I was just like, I need to do this. I mean, I can't, I can't, you know, if you're out in the community with like one RT and one nurse, you know, you miss your intubation, no big deal. Reposition the head, bag them up a little bit. It's, you know, nobody cares. Nobody notices. Right. I'm like the entire nursing staff, they're like, oh, then she's going to intubate somebody. Yeah, you know, USC, let's see how this goes. Yeah, you know, USC, the residents are so great. They yeah. can like do it on yes. their own at that point. Right. So now so, it's like, oh, let's see let's if you see still if you got it. it. I still got it. Did you get it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's not the point. The, uh, the point I was getting getting at is that at these trauma centers in major institutions, sometimes the procedures are pretty scary because there are so many people that know stuff around you um, that like you being the one holding the knife, just wondering, am I the best person to be doing this? You know, whereas when you're in a community setting, it's like, yeah, you, you know you're the best person to do it. That's <laughs> not a question. You're the only one. <laughs> you're the that only can. one out there. <laughs> True. So you at least take that level, that amount of self doubt out of the equation. Yeah. You are the best person to do it. You might not be very good at it, yeah. <laughs> but you're the best. Per- you're this person's best and only shot. Anyway, I, I think this is great. I, you know, I, I, I don't know what to make of this paper. Yeah, at the end of the I'm- day, there's two techniques they describe: the traditional open technique with a Shiley. That's what I do personally because uh, that's how I was trained. I kind of like the the bougie technique. I would emphasize one thing about this because I read this carefully. They do not advocate and they do not describe this sort of cut finger bougie tube technique. That's not what they described. They described a more traditional technique where you make an incision, you get into the cricothyroid membrane, you use a trach hook. Oh, yes, that's right. Because in my opinion, the trach hook is everything about a, a cricothyrotomy. If you don't have a trach hook, uh, you got problems. Yeah, that, that blind finger thing <laughs> yeah. was always a little bit scary to no. me because I'm like trying to figure it out slips how to and get moves. my finger out of the way. And- you cut into that cricothyroid membrane, put a trachea in there, and then lift out the trachea, even on a really fat neck. You can see the tracheal rings. It was just with your eyes. It's no longer a problem. The bleeding stops because you pull up all that pressure and it pushes it away. So, you know, once you get that part, I mean, you want to use a Shiley, you want to use a bougie. Sounds like bougie might be a little bit better because of the reasons you've described. Like people are just more familiar with dealing right, with it. Yeah, Every maybe. time you pick up that Shiley, you're like, which way it goes? Do I take the inner cannula <laughs> out now? Or what? You know, so there's always a little bit of angst about that. So I, I, but this is a great study. And man, what a place to train where you get to do this right, kind of stuff. Yeah, small study, Had but yeah. It, Shout out. Helpful for the early learners is kind of what I took home from this. Edit this commentary. This was a small, prospective, randomized study conducted at a single center that observed resident physicians' ability to complete cricothyrotomy procedure on sheeps who were modified to represent morbidly obese patients. The study compared a traditional technique to an alternative bougie-guided technique. It is one of the few that looks at cricothyrotomy airway techniques in the morbidly obese population 
who have a potential to have difficult airway due to impalpable landmarks. It showed that a bougie-guided technique was faster and probably safer than the traditional technique for early learners. Abstract number 12, traumatic arthrotomies, do they all need the operating room? Question mark. McKnight et al. Journal of Orthopedic Trauma. And, uh, you know, I must say, love this article. Love it. It's very rare that I have like three or four articles in a month that I love. And I'll tell you that the next one I hate. So, boom. Um, <laughs> but this one I love. So, what do you do? And this is a question to pose to you, to, for all of you to think about, including you, Whitney. What do you do with wounds that are just over a joint and maybe involve the joint, but you just can't tell for sure? If they do involve the joint space itself, is definitely like minimal, right? Like you don't see like the articular surface like popping right, out. Right, it's not obvious. There. And they're not soiled with grease and dirt. It's a clean wound. It's like it's just over the patella and it's like, eh, could, you know, could it have gotten deep in there or whatever? This can be a major pain for emergency physicians, especially if you're at a place where orthopedist is not super happy to come and help you which I believe is all places. <laughs> so I think this study kind of obliquely helps uh, get an answer to this question. So the authors are orthopedists, and they look at outcomes of patients with confirmed traumatic arthrotomies, so open joints, and they compare those who went to the OR for a washout versus those who did not go to the OR for a washout. And they had traumatic arthrotomies confirmed. The intro is absolutely fascinating. They note that in 1958, an orthopedist named Hampton reported that most simple penetrating wounds to joints could be treated with tetanus prophylaxis, antibiotics, sterile dressing, and a splint, and that the risk of septic arthritis was actually quite low. But orthopedists the world over ignored the good Dr. Hampton and adopted the dogma that all injuries violating the joint need operative washout. Basically, the authors say that in the intervening 60 years, there have been no studies at all on this topic, like on whether this is a good idea or a bad idea. They just accepted, go to the OR. Go to the OR, you know, bill for the procedure, move on, you know. But what they don't appreciate is the problem it gives us because it creates this idea that if you miss an open joint, like all hell's going to break right. loose, right? Because yeah, for them, it's like, okay, it's open, whatever, I'll just wash it out up in the OR, no big deal. But for us, we're often dealing with the question of whether it's open or not. Anyway. So it turns out, though, that some people have stopped taking some of those patients to the OR in favor of the Hampton approach, but without any evidence. They're just sort of like, you know what, this just doesn't seem like it's worth it. The purpose of this study is to determine the rate of subsequent septic arthritis for people undergoing the sort of Hampton approach, the non-operative approach, compared to those who go in for a traditional washout. So stunningly, this is amazing. This is actually a prospective study from four trauma centers, and it was registered with clinicaltrials.gov. It took place between 2015 and 2018, and patients were included if they had an open joint. And that was proven by either a saline load test, right, the old methylene blue, but now we don't do that methylene blue anymore, we just inject saline, direct visualization of the joint, or a CT that showed pneumoarthrosis in the joint, so air in the joint where the penetrating injury occurred. You also, in order to qualify, this had to be a major joint that was knees, elbows, hips, etc. For all intents and purposes, this is knees. 80 plus percent of the cases that were enrolled were knee joints. The next most common was the elbow, which was about 15% of cases. So between the two of those, that accounted for almost all of the joints that were being assessed here. The attending surgeon determined the course of treatment she or he wanted 
and captured the data prospectively about the size of the defect in the joint, like how, how big or small the cut through the joint capsule was, and how much contamination there was. Was it grossly contaminated, minimally contaminated, etc.? And the patients were all followed up for 90 days. They actually tried to follow them for a year, but 90 days was their primary. They enrolled 189 patients and only lost nine of them to follow up, which is pretty good, good yeah. for trauma centers. That's only 5%. 60 people were in the non-operative group. And again, that's surgeon preference. It's not randomized. So 60, which is a third of the sample, were in the non-op group, and 67% went into the operative group. The mean age was 30. You know, as I said, most of them were knees or elbows. The size of the arthrotomy and the degree of contamination was vastly different between the two groups. And that's not surprising, right? Huge wounds to a knee joint are different than a small wound. If it's got dirt and feces and beer in it, that's going to be different than, you know, if it's like a pretty clean wound from a, you know, a laceration or something, a simple laceration. So there's a big difference there. Overall, the rate of septic arthritis that developed in the non-operative group, so those 60 people, there was one case that turned into septic arthritis, one case, so 1.8%. And there were seven cases of septic arthritis that developed in the operative group, which is 5.6%. So Dr. Hampton was right. Dr. Hampton appears to have been <laughs> prescient, as those people who speak English well like to say. Costs, they also looked at, at that not surprisingly, were way higher in the operative group, right? They, it was like $12,000 versus the non-op group, which was like $1,000 because they didn't do anything. Look, I don't want to make too much out of this. The numbers are small, but the general point that is if someone has a small, not grossly contaminated traumatic arthrotomy, the risk of septic arthritis is actually pretty low. I did not know that. I had no idea that the risk of developing septic arthritis could be 1% or 2%. I always thought it was way higher than that. So, I would not change practice on, on the basis of this. However, I'll say this. If I've got a patient with a deepish lack over their knee, right, or elbow, and I don't really think it gets into the joint, but I can't tell for sure, this gives me a little more confidence to just explore it, wash it out bedside as much as you possibly can, clean it, splint it, give them some antibiotics, and give them return precautions. Because even if you're wrong and it did get into the joint, the chance of septic arthritis is really, really low. Mm -hmm. If you're right and it didn't get into the joint, then the, the risk of septic arthritis is zero. It's a whole different story if you know it's open. You know, then to me, if you, you do your range of motion, you're like, oh, there's, that's the you know, articular surface of the knee, then I'm calling an orthopedist or transferring the patient to the orthopedist. And if they decide that, you know what, this one's small and whatnot, I think we should be aware that that's not completely insane to non-operatively manage those cases, but I wouldn't, you know, sort of like go, oh, it's a just a mildly open joint. I'm going to send them home on the basis of this small non-randomized trial. Editor's commentary. This is a really provocative study of patients with traumatic open large joints. The findings suggest that joints with smaller defects and those that are not grossly contaminated could be managed without operative washout. The results must be considered preliminary at this point given the non-randomized nature of the study and should not be rapidly applied to the bedside by emergency physicians without orthopedic involvement. Paper number 13. Antibiotics for lower respiratory tract infection in children presenting to primary care in England. Arctic PC, a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial. Authors were Little et al. and the journal was The Lancet. London, England. So this is great. Uh, every year, 
winter comes around and we get a large percentage of kids that are going to the primary care doctor and also to the emergency department, actually, with their cough, congestion, runny nose, fever. So in the UK, they've actually been looking at increasing trends of these types of visits for these respiratory symptoms. And along with this, they've seen 40% more children are being prescribed antibiotics for uncomplicated lower respiratory tract infections. Seeing as most of these are typically viral, there's a growing concern for antibiotic overuse and the contribution to rising antibiotic resistance. But unfortunately, there's very little research or evidence in the pediatric population to support or dispute the practice of prescribing antibiotics in children who were diagnosed with lower respiratory tract infections. So what this paper attempts to do is ask the question, or answer the question rather, Does amoxicillin help to reduce the duration of symptoms in children presenting with an uncomplicated lower respiratory tract infection in the primary care setting? This was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study done at 56 sites in England in the primary care setting. The authors evaluated 438 children ages 6 months to 12 years old, so there were approximately 220 kids in each group, and the groups were evenly matched. And the demographics were primarily young boys, an average age of three years old. Patients were seen by a primary care physician who would determine if they had symptoms of a lower respiratory tract infection that the provider didn't think was a pneumonia. And then the symptoms had to be present for less than 21 days to be considered part of the study. So there were two groups. The intervention group, the children were given a seven-day course of antibiotics to see if the antibiotics would help reduce the duration of symptoms compared to the control group that was managed with just supportive measures. And ultimately, they were looking at the duration of symptoms, specifically if the antibiotics would reduce the symptoms by three days. And the secondary outcome was the severity of symptoms or worsening symptoms, looking at kind of the percentages of those, and also a little bit of some evaluation on if there were specific subgroups that were more likely to have reduced symptoms. Overall, the results are what we would expect. There wasn't any significant difference between the intervention group and the placebo group. Both groups had the same number of days for duration of symptoms, which were five to six days roughly. And both groups were given similar scores for symptom severity, rates of return with worsening symptoms, rates of hospitalization, and some of the general side effects, which they defined as just having like GI symptoms, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. What I found interesting to consider about this paper was that it kind of left this potentially hard diagnostic decision for clinicians. Because how do you separate pneumonia from lower respiratory tract infection? It asked for a clinical determination between the two, giving the characteristics for a lower respiratory tract infection being shortness of breath, sputum production, chest pain. These were similar to what they defined as acute bronchitis, But the study actually doesn't then define what were features of pneumonia. So this may be the only problem when you're trying to translate this data. Well, they're they're stuck though, right? These are like primary care docs. They don't have an x-ray. We have an x-ray. Right. (laughs) Which I feel like would be like diagnosis. They probably can get one, but it takes a day or two. And they're like, yeah, I'll just take a guess based on whether they have like crackly lungs or not. Right. So, I mean, overall, you know, everything was what I thought. When it comes to patients with, or when it comes to children, rather, with the cough, congestion, runny nose, and maybe a fever, more likely to be viral in nature, more likely to be supportive measures, hang back on the antibiotics because it only creates potential for more problems, including antibiotic resistance and some of the nasty side effects like diarrhea. 
Yeah, and the the belief in the parents that they need antibiotics next time they have a cough. Right. Yeah, and then <laughs> like the just... last eight times he had a cough, they gave him antibiotics and he got better. Right. It must be that antibiotics are good for him. Which I can see can put a primary care doc in an even tighter situation yeah. because yeah. I can get out of it. I uh, might see you once yeah. <laughs> in the like... year. Primary care doc has to see you regularly. Yeah, and then when the kid's still coughing two weeks later, I told you he needed the antibiotics. Right. We don't hear that one. Editor's commentary. This was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study that attempted to examine the utility of antibiotics in pediatric patients who had been diagnosed with lower respiratory tract infections. Overall, this was a good study and represents the first of its kind. It showed that for children presenting to primary care doctors with uncomplicated acute lower respiratory tract infections, there is unlikely to be a clinically relevant effect of antibiotic therapy on symptom burden. Abstract number 14, Prospective Multicenter Controlled Trial of Mobile Stroke Units by Grada et al., New England Journal of Medicine. Remember how I said I hated one of them? Oh, don't like this article. Stroke fans? Stroke fans. I do not <laughs> Not your fan. thing? Oof. So, well, I don't know. You know, I, I could be convinced if the data would be presented in a way that would allow me to be convinced of it. So this is another study in the emerging field of mobile stroke units. Basically, these are ambulances that are like loaded up. They got two medics, a critical care nurse, a CT scanner, and some kind of CT tech. And they're supported by a telemedicine neurologist. Wow. Yeah. That's stacked. I don't have a nurse <laughs> for my critical beds. And this, this is what we're doing to get people out to, to my hospital two minutes faster. CT on wheels. Yeah. With all the accoutrement, you know? I mean, come on. The notion is that by sending these people out in the field for possible stroke calls, we get better outcomes by getting CTs done sooner and TPA administered faster. I mean, that's like the actual point here. These units are being deployed in various communities well in advance of the science. We covered a paper on this in the past, maybe like six months ago, maybe less, from Berlin, but this is the first observational study come from the United States. This study looks at the experience from seven centers in the United States, including Los Angeles, but almost all the data actually comes from Houston, 76% of it, and to a lesser extent, Colorado, 11%. The other five sites, it's like 1% or 2% of the data actually comes from those sites. So it's really a study of Houston. The study design and analytic strategy is weird and worth going over because it makes the results, in my view, fairly impossible to understand. Basically, each of these cities had the MSU a certain point of the day, and otherwise it wasn't available. Like It was like 9 to 5 or whatever. So when someone called 911 with a possible stroke symptom that was less than four and a half hours duration, right? So they call 911, grandma, you know, is, won't move and it's been three hours since she won't move. They would send the MSU, the mobile stroke unit out there if it was during those times of the day. Otherwise, they would send a normal rig, right? So that's what they would do. Okay, no problem. So what that means is that the 911 dispatcher apparently didn't try to figure out which case was more or less likely to have a stroke. They just had their criteria, sent the rig if available, not if otherwise. I don't know if that's true, that they didn't try to figure it out, but that was the plan. They then analyzed the outcomes of those patients who got the MSU versus those that didn't. And since, in theory at least, you know, it's not like they're selecting on who's got a severe stroke or not, they're just sending the MSU out based on time of day, that should reduce the possibility of selection bias towards who got the MSU. But here's the rub. They don't analyze all the patients who got the MSU. They only analyze those patients that ended up being, quote, TPA eligible, as assessed by research neurologists 
after the fact. Okay. So what that means is that they started off with 10,000 patients that the 911 dispatcher said met criteria for the MSU. Send it out there. Okay. Most were not enrolled. They would just, they got out there and they're like, oh, whether it was the MSU or the regular rig that got out there, like, oh, this person, you know, doesn't have a qualifying stroke. This person has a stroke mimic. This person has a stroke, but it's been more than four and a half hours. So right off the bat, 90% or almost 90% of the people were not eligible. And this was as determined by that neurologist that was on, it's or actually, was it the... It's a, it's a little confusing. This looks like it was the, the rig got out there and said, no, this isn't a real stroke. Huh, okay. Okay. So that's the first thing. Of the remainder, there were 1,500 patients who actually sort of did make the first pass. And they're like, yep, looks like it meets you know, all of our criteria for stroke and all that kind of stuff. Of that 1,500, 600 of them were eligible for TPA in the MSU group and 400 in the normal EMS group. So they cut down another 500 patients for some sundry list of reasons. And we end up with a cohort of 1,000 people 600 who were TPA eligible in the MSU group and 430 who were TPA eligible in the normal group. So we've cut down 90% of the patients who actually were exposed to the MSU, right? And we have no outcome data on those patients at all. We have no idea what the MSU did to them. It's totally impossible to know. So that's a major, major problem. The primary outcome was the modified Rankin score, utility adjusted modified Rankin score at 90 days, which favored the MSU. Um, in a statistically significant manner, but just barely. It was 0.72 for the MSU group and 0.66 for the EMS group. And again, a result that just reached statistical significance. The problems with this study arise from the fact that it's non-randomized, right? It's not random who got it. It was sort of like based on time of day. And it gives a biased and limited view of the impact. For example, the data show, you have to dig into the tables here, but the data show that 50 people who got exposed to the MSU mm-hmm. and made that original 1,500 got TPA, but were later adjudicated to not have been TPA eligible. And their data aren't, yeah, their data are not included. Their outcome data are not included in the study because they were never TPA eligible. The MSU went out there with lights and sirens on trying to give TPA. They gave them TPA. Right. And then they're like, yeah, you know what? You shouldn't have got TPA. So we're not going to count you. they just removed all that. Well, you can't do that. (laughs) That's like totally cheating. Um, And it's actually almost 10% of the total number of people who got TPA. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So- if those people's outcomes were poor, you know, then that would change the meaning completely. But it's at a minimum extremely concerning that so many of them got yeah, TPA. You're missing a t- chunk of information well, here. Well, <laughs> and they got TPA and they weren't eligible. Like, what's going on, guys? Can't do that. And that's to say nothing of the thousands of people who got the MSU but weren't even close to being an actual candidate. So they, you know, some guy was drunk on a park bench or some guy got kicked in the head and you know, they've got all these medics out there trying to figure out if they have a stroke. And I don't know if they're doing a good job of trauma care. We have no idea. We right. have no, they might yeah. be ignoring all of that stuff because all they care about is does he meet TPA criteria and all those things. We just don't know. Nine, you know, 9,000 of the 10,000 people that they went to see, we don't have outcome data on. And that's why intent to treat strategies are important, right? Because you don't know, after, you know until three weeks from now if you should have gone out there or not. All you know is I'm sending this unit out there. And so when I do that, I should be able to know what the results are going to be, mm-hmm. you know, on mm-hmm. average and how that compares to other things. So anyway, there's other, there are a lot of other issues. Like for example, only about 100 more people got TPA in the MSU group compared with the routine care group, but somehow the overall cohort had an effect size 
that is as large as the best case scenario TPA effect size in randomized controlled trials. Even though most people didn't get TPA, mm-hmm. it's as large as the trials, you know, the well, ECAS3 trials that showed benefit of TPA, the, the effect size. That doesn't make sense. It defies any kind of plausibility. And then one other, other fact that I think is probably the most damning fact in the whole article, actually, despite all that stuff that I already dislike. And that is that there's a mortality difference between the MSU and the non-MSU group favoring the MSU. That is 8.9% of the MSU people died versus 11.9% in the non-rig. So you say, but that should be good. That's a good thing that people don't die, right? Except that there's never, ever, ever been any evidence that TPA saves lives. It's never happened. No trial, nothing. It's always been slightly more favorable neurologic outcome, mortality the same. Right. Always, always, So does this always. have to do with just better care that they were attributing to? I doubt it. I think it's selection bias. Hmm, I think there's something it. going on there that somehow less sick people are being triaged to the MSU. I'm not saying they did it in, intentionally to you know, distort their data, right. but it happened. Yeah. People who had strokes when the MSU was available were not as sick as people who had strokes when the MSU. It might be because of nighttime, daytimes, weekends. Otherwise, it might be because the times are better understood in the MSU group versus the, the non-MSU group. Like the, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's impossible, impossible that that survival difference can be driven by giving a few more doses of TPA. That's right. not, that defies all plausibility. So I could go on and on about why I hate this study. I think there's um, you know, more things in there. But mostly I'll end by saying, look, you want to do this stuff. You want to you know, send all our EMS resources and consolidate them into big vans and have CT scanners and take all our CT techs out of the emergency room and send them on these vans. Because I know they're going to love that. CT techs are going to love oh, this. God, no. Chilling out all day <laughs> long, you know, hardly doing nothing. We, don't, we have one tech in our hospital. You know, you want to do that. Okay. You need to do a serious study, randomized controlled trial that demonstrates that it's effective with an intent to treat analysis. Anything less than that, in my view, is way substandard. Editor's commentary. This is a large but severely limited observational study of mobile stroke unit compared with regular EMS rigs for patients with stroke symptoms. The results show that MSUs administer more TPA to people with TPA-eligible strokes and to those who did not have TPA-eligible strokes. The functional outcomes slightly favored those patients with TPA-eligible strokes treated by an MSU. We do not have any clinical outcome data for the 90% of patients treated by the MSUs who did not have TPA-eligible strokes. This strategy is resource-intense and, in my opinion, far from proven to be effective. Paper number 15, Evaluation and Management of Traumatic Pneumothorax, a Western Trauma Association Critical Decisions Algorithm. Done by Demoy et al. I'm published in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. And so this wasn't actually a study. This was a, more of a consensus statement from the Western Trauma Association that talked about and gave us a more a nuanced approach to pneumothorax in blunt and penetrating trauma. Historically, all of these were getting chest tubes, but recent research has been evaluating if it's truly indicated for every pneumo especially because we're diagnosing more pneumothoraces now that we've got those trauma patients that are getting the 64 or 125 slice high-res CT. Yeah, so we're finding a lot more of these than we were before. I know, I read that and I was like, the thought that came to my mind, they're like, yeah, you know, now we diagnose all these teensy ones that we used to never know about. 
And I just sort of thought that a pneumothorax in 2020 is just different than a pneumothorax in, in 1990. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is not your father's pneumothorax. Anyway. So taking that into account, <laughs> the Western Trauma Association tries to give us uh, an approach. Uh, their overall goal was to kind of build an algorithm that offers a more nuanced approach to traumatic pneumothoraces. And the algorithm was built supported by a review of current published literature paired with the expert opinions from a few peeps on the WTA. Overall, the algorithm had very straightforward decision points to it and recommendations. Recommendation number one was if the patient is unstable and has a pneumo, place the chest tube. And this was even if the instability is due to another concomitant injury. Yeah, just take that out of the equation. Take the pneumo out of the equation. Exactly, yeah. It's, it was basically like, hey, if your patient was tacky, had a high respiratory rate, was hypotensive, or had a base deficit greater than four, put the tube in. And it noted that pneumothoraces that were less than one centimeter were not likely to contribute to this physiologic instability, but like you said, best to take it off the table. Recommendation number two says to use the smallest tube possible. Even consider a pigtail, probably okay. And if there's a hemoneumothorax, a 28 French should be fine. Recommendation number three states that if on the chest x-ray, the pneumothorax was greater than two centimeters, or on CT scan, that pneumo was greater than three and a half centimeters, empirically place the chest tube. If it's less than any of these, then it's probably okay for observation with interval chest x-ray in six hours. And it points out that approximately 10% of patients are likely to fail that observation period and ultimately need a chest tube, but worth a shot. And then the recommendation that I thought was the one that was the most interesting to me and maybe potentially practice changing for me because I don't do this currently, but recommendation number four stated that prophylactic antibiotics should be used before all chest tubes. Obviously, don't wait for your antibiotics if the patient is unstable, but for everyone else, it advises for antibiotics before inserting the chest tube and highlights that this can reduce the risk of developing empyemas. And as they looked at other literature, they thought that that risk would be reduced from 7% to 1%. And the risk of pneumonia could be reduced from 10.7% down to 4.4%. And they did this looking at like a 2019 meta-analysis. Only real limitation to that recommendation was that there weren't any recommendations on which antibiotic or the duration of therapy, but I take it as it's reasonable to give that first single-dose ANSEF in the emergency department before you put the chest tube in. Looking at the overall approach to this paper, the limitations were by way of the methodology, which I felt like wasn't clearly their search strategy, not clearly defined, and the choosing of this expert panel also not clearly defined, or why these experts were and how chosen. they adjudicated, like if they had different, because they they sort of describe different opinions and stuff, and they just sort of like we had some areas of controversy. This right. is what we recommend. Like, <laughs> right. Who who won? Doesn't was matter because I know Kenji Anaba was under there, and I'm wondering, did he just throw around his muscle? Is that what happened, or <laughs> did somebody have some real process? You nah. should ask him on shift. Yeah. Maybe we will. Editor's commentary. The WTA has provided useful guidelines for indications for chest tube placement in trauma patients with pneumothorax, as well as additional recommendations for empiric therapies to minimize potential complications. In general, the society recommends immediate placement of chest tube in a hemodynamically unstable trauma patient with evidence of pneumothorax, even if concomitant injuries are contributory. Physicians are advised to use the smallest tube possible. 
pneumothoraces larger than 2 centimeters warrant an empiric chest tube placement. And lastly, the Society recommends prophylactic antibiotics for all chest tube placement. Quick take. Abstract number 16, this is a quick take. It's diagnostic accuracy of physical examination findings for mid-facial and mandibular fractures. This is by Rosema et al., and it's an injury. I'll do it quick because it doesn't shed as much light on the situation as I was hoping. The study is basically asking, what is the sensitivity and specificity of various physical exam findings for mid-face and mandibular fractures? Which I thought would be very helpful because you know, a lot of times people come in with like a little swelling or whatever, and you're like, do I really need to scan this thing? You know, they got an owie, you know, do I need to do that or not? The authors attempt to answer this question by doing a, a retrospective cohort study with chart review methods of consecutive patients that presented to a single site in the Netherlands in 2017. And you know how I feel about the Dutch, right? I don't. How do you feel? There's only two things that I can't stand in this world. Two kinds of people I can't stand in this world. People who are intolerant of other people's culture and the Dutch. <laughs> what? It's from Austin Powers. I'm glad that I could amuse you. Wow, What's funny wow. is uh, there's, a, there's a Dutch listener who frequently comments when I make that comment about I was just going to say. Oh, it's like, she has a wonderful sense of humor. You know who you are. There's probably a lot that don't have a wonderful sense of humor, but they've stopped listening a long time ago, so we're good. <laughs> So they reviewed all these charts to assess for 19 individual physical exam findings and compare each of these against the presence or absence of a mid-face fracture or mandibular fracture as assessed by the CT scan. There were 1,300 patients with mid-face trauma identified. A little over a third of them had a fracture. There were about 400 people with mandibular trauma. About a third of those had a mandibular fracture. They found numerous very specific physical exam findings when they did this analysis of all these 19 different things. For example, the presence of diplopia was 98% specific for an ocular fracture. Bony crepitus over the midface was 99.4% specific. <laughs> I think so. Same kind of idea for raccoon eyes or malocclusion of the jaw. Very high specificity. My favorite was they had a, a variable. This is true. They had a variable called changes to the globe position. So your eyes actually moved, right, compared to where they were before on your yeah. driver's license. That was 100% specific, it turns well, out. None of these are subtle. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, if you see something like that, you better be ordering a CT. But that was like, I don't, you know, it just doesn't help us. We already knew that. However, so on the flip side, there were no physical exam signs that were very sensitive for fracture right? Even something like periorbital hematoma, right? Was only 50% sensitive, meaning that half the people that had a fracture of their eyeball apparently didn't have a periorbital hematoma. So there's nothing in there. There's no physical exam finding that can rule out fracture. There's a whole bunch of them that say, oh yeah, you absolutely need to scan this person. But there's nothing that says, no, you really don't need to scan that person. And that's really what I was looking for and hoping for, that there'd be some very sensitive findings, and there just weren't any. So, you know, I don't think we can take too much of it. There's lots of problems with the study, including a really important one that they just talk about fractures and not like really clinically significant fractures or fractures that required operations. But that's really at this point a secondary problem 
you know, because the basic data just doesn't give us that kind of high sensitive finding that you could say, okay, that's not there. I don't need to scan. Okay, this so they're not talking about like the Lafort fractures yeah. that we all learn about. And- well, you know, not specifically, but mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. They're not specifically saying that. So we we just it just doesn't add very much. And I was hopeful that it would, and we don't see too much that's sort of describing midface and mandibular fractures, but it just didn't add very much to I think what we already understand and doesn't answer questions that I think are clinically important at this point. Edit this commentary. This is a retrospective review of consecutive patients seen at a trauma center with facial injury who had a CT scan. About one-third had an identified fracture. Many findings were specific for fracture, including diplopia, malocclusion of the jaw, raccoon eyes, arguing that these patients with these types of findings should all be scanned. Unfortunately, there were no findings that were sensitive enough to rule out fracture, leaving us not more sure about which patients can forego CT scanning than when we started. Paper number 17. Safety of femoral nerve blockade for hip fractures in adult patients treated with anti-10A direct oral anticoagulants, a pilot study done by Dr. Dayan et al. and published in the Israel Medical Association Journal. The background on this one is that hip fractures are painful and you need analgesics for them. And, you know, it's best to treat your patient's pain while you're waiting for definitive management to be completed. But the escalating doses of opioids, especially in the elderly population, we know has the potential to have some detrimental complications to it. So nerve blocks now are quickly becoming a, that safe and effective alternative form of pain control in hospitalized patients, especially the elderly. This study evaluates how safe it is to do those femoral nerve blocks on patients on anticoagulants. It's something many of us probably have already done, actually, and talk about a lot with our colleagues, but maybe wondered if it's actually okay. So this is one of the first times that literature has evaluated whether or not this is a truly safe procedure for this specific patient population. The authors sought to examine the difference in safety outcomes of the ultrasound-guided femoral nerve block compared to standard analgesic options for patients with hip fractures who are taking anti-10A direct oral anticoagulants. It was the first observational prospective cohort study of its kind. It was done in a single large regional trauma center in Israel, and it was over a three-year time period. The study in three years included 69 participants that had hip fractures and were on a DOAC. In the groups themselves, the general makeup was primarily male patients with an average age of 82. The intervention group received a femoral nerve block compared to the control group, which received a conventional analgesics. Which Just could morphine have been, or whatever. It could have been opioids, acetaminophen, yeah, general. And the patients that were in the study got to choose one or the other. And in order to be in that intervention group, there also had to be a trained ED doctor that was on shift and available at the time to perform the procedure. They primarily looked at major bleeding events during the procedure and within 30 days after hospitalization. And I think just right off the bat, just to bring up an issue with looking at that primary outcome, major bleeding events that were defined here were actually likely to be from the preceding trauma that resulted in the hip Or the operation. (laughs) Right. And I say that because it it occurred in almost 50% of patients, irregardless of what group they were in. But when you break it down and look at the bleeding that we care about, which is the bleeding that was directly related to the procedure itself, critical site bleeds, fatal bleeds, and wound hematomas, there were none in either group. 
So then the secondary outcome they looked at was the pain control between the two groups. And overall, the study found that there was no difference, like we said, in the major bleeding events between the two groups. And secondarily, the authors reported that the femoral nerve block was a more effective means of pain control. Obvious limitation here, it's a small study, very small. In the three years, the authors only had 69 patients, and out of those, only 19 actually got the femoral nerve block. So kind of difficult as far as making any lasting decisions on how this would change practice. I think if you already do the the nerve blocks, you're probably going to keep doing them, and it's probably okay in this population. Yeah, at least it tells us there wasn't something obviously wrong with doing them. All right, which is what I'm more reassured about. Editor's commentary. This was a small observational prospective cohort study looking at the safety of performing a femoral nerve block in patients who were taking anti-10A direct oral anticoagulants and were found to have a hip fracture. The authors evaluated the incidence of potential hemorrhagic complications from the procedure. In this study, there were no complications directly related to the procedure. The authors report excellent pain control and no local bleeding complications, but the study is severely limited by its very small size. Abstract number 18, sensitivity of diffusion-weighted MRI in transient global amnesia as a function of time from symptom onset. This is by Wong et al. It's an academic emergency medicine. And this is kind of a wacky topic. Transient global amnesia. Something I've seen like maybe a handful of times in my career. And each time has resulted in transient confusion on my part as to what to do. <laughs> I'm confused now. <laughs> Have you seen cases of transient global amnesia? These people that just like basically the typical case is someone who's like 50 to 70 years old, supposed to be like sort of like, you know, sort of towards advancing age, who suddenly lose the ability to form new memories. It's usually preceded by some kind of stress, either emotional or physical stress. And otherwise, they're completely normal. They're cognitively normal. They can still do math puzzles and play chess and all this stuff, but they do that repetitive questioning thing. They don't have trauma. They don't have, they have a physical stress. And they basically lose their damn mind for a little while. Wait, so what's the presenting chief complaint then? Usually it's repetitive questioning or acting weird. Uh, when I've okay. seen it, it's okay. been that. Yeah. I'm, I can see the case. I mean, I've only had like a few cases ever. And they're like, yeah, she's being really weird. And you're like, oh, what's going on? And she's like, I don't know. They told me I'm being weird. <laughs> Who are you? And mm. then they're like, and you're like, do you know where you are? And they're like, mm, I'm in a hospital. Do you know how you got here? No, I don't know how I got here. You know, it's like that. But otherwise, they're totally fine. No focal neurologic deficits. No delirium, no, you know, inability to concentrate. It's just that. The symptoms resolve within 12 to 24 hours, sort of gradually. Interestingly, this does not appear to be a TIA. That's very important. Transient global amnesia patients are not more likely to progress to stroke than other patients, and MRI findings do not overlap with stroke findings. There are some MRI findings in some of these cases, and those MRI findings are some sort of strange things that they describe in this paper in diffusion-weighted imaging in the hippocampus. So at least it's in the part of the brain where you would think memory formation is. But it's not a stroke. It's like a restriction of this or that. It's just, it's like a little signal in there that is sometimes associated with transient global amnesia. So some authors have argued for getting a DWI, diffusion-weighted imaging MRI, to confirm the diagnosis in the ER. You rule out stroke, you rule in transient global amnesia, and then you're good to go. Others say this is silly for two reasons. Number one, it's not dangerous. It's not a dangerous diagnosis. If they have a truly normal neurologic exam, except for this, you know, anterograde amnesia, that's just not a stroke. There's no indication that that's a stroke. 
or anything like a stroke. And two, the MRI lesions, if they do appear, don't appear right away. Weirdly, they're not there. They show up later. And so that's the point of this study. These guys look at the world's literature on this topic to tell us how sensitive the MRI is at various different times for these sort of weird lesions that pop up in the hippocampus. So they do all the stuff, you know, they search the world's literature. They find 23 studies of 1,700 patients, which I actually thought was a lot of patients with this thing. And then they say, well, what did the MRI show at various different times on those kinds of cases? Like repeat MRIs in the same patient? Yeah, they got repeats. Okay. Yeah. So ultimately, they found that early MRI was only 15% sensitive for identifying those diagnostic lesions in the hippocampus that eventually showed up. So if you do the MRI a week later, you're like, aha, there it is. But if you do the MRI in hours 0 to 12, sort of like in the ED Mm -hmm. visit, they're only there 15% of the time, even if they show up later. So there's really no point in doing it. That gets, you know, that sensitivity increases at each interval and rises to about 72% by three to four days. But still, even at three to four days, the lesions that show up in the hippocampus aren't, it's not like 100% of them have shown up. Ultimately, the authors conclude that emergency physicians should think about getting neuroimaging when symptoms are not typical of transient global amnesia. That is, they have focality issues or they're confused, the patient's actually confused or having cognitive impairment and not just purely a memory thing or if there's personality changes or anything like that. But otherwise, forget about it. Don't image them. Typically, recommendations also say you should keep those patients in the hospital until their memory improves, which is typically, like I said, 12 to 24 hours. Sometimes people will, you know, in a couple of these cases, I've actually sent home with their family members if they can be watched very carefully. But most of the time, you admit them or put them in an EDOBS unit, and you certainly don't need to be organizing MRIs and all that kind of stuff unless something weird happens. Thank God. How likely is it to get an MRI in the emergency department? <laughs> Not very, where we work. <laughs> Editor's commentary. This meta-analysis of 1,688 patients with transient global amnesia shows even among those who eventually have characteristic findings on MRI, even among those patients, they do not do so for at least 24 to 72 hours. This, combined with the fact that transient global amnesia is not significantly associated with stroke, should dissuade emergency physicians from obtaining MRI with diffusion-weighted imaging in the large majority of patients with this condition. House of Medicine Paper number 19, The Impact of Racism on Emergency Healthcare Workers. Authors were Caltiso et al., and this was published in the Academic Emergency Medicine Official Journal of the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine. So although the topic of racism in our society has always been here, it's been ever-present, I'll bet there are so many people out there that have never heard the terms DEI systemic racism, institutionalized racism, microaggressions, all these pretty fluffy terminologies to it. They don't sound that pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's not bad. What's micro about microaggressions? Well, I I, I agree with the microaggression. I'm like, why are we so concerned about microaggressions? What about macroaggressions? And aren't they all (laughs) technically (laughs) macroaggressions? If you ask the person who experiences it. That's right. Either way, I bet you you've never heard those terms pushed around so much in your institution than you have over this last year, recent years, right? And a lot of this is fueled by a lot of what's going on in our society right now and coming to the forefront here. And unfortunately, there's no place where discriminations and implicit biases can so easily slip through the cracks and become your potentially 
departmental cultural norm or something that is usually brushed off than it is in a fast-paced, stressful environment like the emergency department, where oftentimes there's those little slips in there. While these biases and discriminatory behaviors impact patient care and how patients receive care, we cannot forget that they also have a significant impact on people of color who are healthcare workers within that institution. The lived experiences that people of color might encounter in our society are also prevalent in the workplace. And so this study attempts to examine how racism affects the stress levels of emergency healthcare workers. The authors used an anonymous electronic cross-sectional survey of multiple levels of healthcare workers within three large metropolitan hospitals in the same city over a two-month time period. This was in, was it in Atlanta? Do you know? Or I mean, I know the authors were like from... Atlanta. Yes, so this was in Atlanta. Okay. And this looked at, this included attendings, residents, APPs, RNs, and then some non-clinical staff as well. There were 260 participants who were healthcare workers within the system. Approximately 58% of the demographic identified as white and 29% identified as Black, with the remaining being classified under other because it was just such a small percentage of the Hispanic and Asian populations. Women made up a majority of the participants with the average age being 36 years old. And they had about a 45% response rate. Essentially, they took the survey that had 28 questions in it. And with those questions, they gave a stress scale from zero to 40 how stressed are you about this given statement or question? And the primary outcome was to determine the level of stress among emergency healthcare workers and the relationship between that stress and multiple current events. They referenced things like the COVID pandemic or the civil movement against systemic racism, but ultimately what they focused on was the impact of racism. Overall, a majority of the participants, like 64%, reported that they were very concerned about the state of racism in the United States, with a larger percentage of this being attributed to the Black participants. 46% of Black participants reported high or moderate high stress resulting from their views on racism, compared to 31% of other participants. And one-third, 31% of Black participants were very concerned about experiencing racism and discrimination by medical colleagues at work. And a similar number of participants reported experiencing racism sometimes daily or weekly within their community, but also within their workplace. So that's very concerning. Right. So and so, Especially you think about a place like Atlanta. Right. right. I mean, that's about as, <laughs> you know, ethnically and racially friendly probably as you can get. Right. You know, and so I wonder you what Im that looks like in other places. You can imagine <laughs> how the patient population, probably seemingly diverse and probably actually a majority of Blacks, to be honest with you. But we already know, just looking at our healthcare system, right, there's 2% Black physicians yeah. across our specialty, mm -hmm. or across doctors in general. Don't really know the numbers in the emergency medicine right. specialty, but probably even less. Yeah, um, or somewhat, I mean, it's not, yeah, we're not proportionate. It's not they. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so I think when I was looking at the results of these things, where it identified a majority of participants being concerned about racism in the United States. Well, yeah, like I feel well, and we talked, like... we chatted about this one before. Yeah, look at the timing of this survey, right? The survey was like August 2020. 
I mean, right. that's like we were right in the middle of the pandemic, right in the middle of all the George Floyd yes, protests. We are at the height Black of the Lives Black Matter. Lives Matters movement, even and though it's the, been going on for several years sure. prior. It took this really big, it was ignited a whole lot yeah. by a subsequent number of murders that happened throughout right. those few months. And, you know, I was relatively stunned that only 64% said that they thought they were like bothered by yes, it or very bothered by that- it. I, Left like forty like percent that were like eh, <laughs> whatever, not not bothered by it. Yeah, I know. Anyway, I don't want to take from the it, overall. The majority of people felt bothered by it, but it was it was a little shocking that it was less than less than ninety eight percent. You know, right? And I think the reason that I harp on the numbers and point it out even more is because to me, the paper wasn't very well structured in this approach. This is an important topic. But I would say there was a little bit of a miss on how we approached answering these questions and the specific questions that were to be answered here. A majority of the people that were surveyed were white. So I, you can kind of imagine or extrapolate that as being, yes, concerned, but as far as the true stressors coming from the lived experience or the witnessed experience, it would have been helpful to, to dig more into that. Because as you can see, a majority of the people that expressed those types of moderate to moderate high stress levels and concerns regarding the lived experiences were, in fact, the Black participants. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that for me, what this asks a lot more questions than it answers. And, and, you know, I'm not hostile to this paper. I think they did a, you know, this is a topic, there's no roadmap for how to study this in emergency medicine. It's not like some of our other studies where it's like you do a randomized control trial and you study whether vasopressin and steroids work better than placebo. I mean, we're just we're just scratching the surface of this and it creates for some imperfect study designs, et cetera. But I completely agree with you. What I thought was interesting in particular was, and, and you all out there can't see this, but on one of their tables, they do that thing where they're like, how many of you were very or somewhat you know, bothered by certain topics? 64% said they were bothered by the state of racism in the United States, but only a very small percent said they were worried about or that they were very bothered by experiencing bias from patients. But that's not broken down by the race of the respondents, which because like, as you know, I am very unlikely to experience much bias from my patients as a white man. It's, you know, I get the opposite. I get the assumption that, you know, I'm the doctor and, you know, I know what's up that, I mean, I feel that every single day and I know that that's a privilege and I enjoy it very much that I don't have to justify my credentials to every single patient that I walk in the room on, you know? Right. Um, so I, I'd be very curious to and know. And I am as like a, your stark uh, contrast yeah, yeah. here, right? Like yeah. I am a tiny Afro-Latina who has been mistaken for the janitor, the maid, the nurse, just a random person walking by. I cannot tell you, unfortunately, the number of times I've been called the N-word, you know, standing there in my physician badge and just not really feeling protected by that. And, you know, the little slights and the tiny microaggressions. So I feel like I can empathize with this paper and the message that it's trying to get across because I am like that population that with the lived experience. So it's like kind of emotional to, to think about where they wanted to go with it. And I think I'm a little bit more biased because it, it's such an opportunity. And I felt like it was just a miss just based on some of that structure. But obviously, there's a lot of you know personal sentiment that goes into sure. me really cheering for papers like this that need to come to the forefront now more than ever. Well, and again, science is an iterative process, right? And, and so there will be a study that misses, but in its miss, it highlights what, we're, you know, what we really, ah, I wish we had asked this way. 
And then that informs yes. the next study, you know? And so I think that, you know, I, I still think it's a good contribution, even though, yeah, it's like, we need to know a lot more about, you know, how colleagues, I mean, for me, one of the things that's really highlighted was, I don't know how my colleagues are feeling about, you know, their experience of racism in the ER at all. I have no idea if they're severely, if this is like a day-to-day bad problem for them. You know, right. I mean, if you asked yeah. me, I would probably say, if I'm being fully honest, I'd probably say, eh, it's probably a minor issue or something like that. If I'm being fully honest, if I'm being on a survey, I'd say, oh yeah, I'm very concerned. But if I'm being truly honest, I'd be like, that's probably a minor issue. And I don't know if that's true or not. It's probably not right. true based but, on what you're saying. But you bring up an important point because you are right there in the emergency yeah. department. So can you imagine the people in the C-suite, the people yeah. that are responsible no for instilling the change that we need, right? Not only do they not know how the emergency department mm -hmm. runs most of the time, <laughs> yeah. but they probably have zero idea about some of these things as well. Some of the things that are being perceived as the cultural norms or the jest or the just, just kidding type microaggressions that we're even talking about. So I think you're right. Like this paper tries to convey a very strong message and it's a recurrent theme that is being talked about more and more, but definitely needs more to it. And they even take it a step further to try to note some strategies to advance the overall agenda. That's the other thing that I'm looking about. We've got papers back to the 1980s that identify biases and how they contribute to um, a lack of patient care or the lack of equitability. But now we need to kind of start seeing papers that propose the potential interventions. They do a little bit here. They just mentioned kind of like mandatory foundational education and education on allyship, those things that can help our white colleagues, our Asian colleagues, and our black colleagues. Like, keeping ourselves aligned. So I appreciate that. But yeah, it's definitely something that we now need to start advancing and look at some of those. Editor's commentary. This paper was an observational cross-sectional survey seeking to find out what the level of impact that racism has on the stress of emergency healthcare workers. Although the methodology and focus of the paper is not as clearly conveyed, it does well to echo a message on diversity, equity, and inclusion that is growing in medical literature right now. It emphasizes the increased awareness of healthcare workers have of the reality of systemic racism. It also highlights the awareness of the widespread reach that racism and implicit bias might have even within the workplace environment where the explicitly altruistic goals of all health providers are aligned. Abstract number 20, improving emergency department throughput using audit and feedback with peer comparison among emergency department physicians by Scofie et al. This is in the Journal of Healthcare Quality. So I'm a big fan of audit and feedback with peer comparison to improve emergency care, at least in theory. The general notion is that you measure some important things for each provider. You tell them how they're doing relative to one another and voila, everything gets better. The fast get faster, the slow get faster. The middle tightens up if it's about speed, if it's about something else, you know, we reduce variation and reduce outliers. That's the idea, right? Because you, you don't like being the slowest person in the emergency <laughs> department or the, the most CT happy or whatever. So the problem with this is that the published data are not very strong that support that these th interventions actually work. This is a study from Yale Medical Center's experience developing and deploying such a system for their ED providers. It's a pretty cool system in that it's fully automated from their EHR data. And what they're able to provide is daily, quarterly, and annual reports detailing 
their faculty's production in terms of four common ED metrics. And those were their admission rate, the time to discharge for discharge patients, so how long it took you to get from a patient hitting your room to when you discharge them, or time to admit for an admitted patient. And I assume that means when you made the decision to admit, not how long they hung out in the ER, and how many patients you saw per hour. So those were the four variables that they were tracking and feeding back to the individual providers. Basically, they look at you know these measures for individual physicians in the year prior to deploying the system, then in the years after deploying the system. They did the usual stuff by excluding physicians who didn't see very many patients or physicians who left the practice and patients who had outlier ED lengths of stay that might represent an EHR, like if you're in the ER for 50 hours or something like that. They ended up with 36 attending physicians who treated just under 300,000 patients throughout the study period. They do not explain how they attribute each patient to an attending and how they handled patients with multiple attending signouts, which has usually been a problem, or how they handled the resident effect because they do acknowledge they had residents. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's this other layer of stuff going on. They just, they just say we, we assigned it to an attending. I, I don't know how they do that. In fairness, I usually do think of that as attenuating any effect because the residents bounce from physician to physician. Right. So any true difference between me and you is attenuated by the fact that we have the same residents. Okay, what'd they find? Overall, they found that all of these variables improved throughout the study period by about 20% relative. That is, the admission rate went down from about 42% to 34%, an absolute improvement of 8%, but a 20% relative improvement. Time to discharge went down from 200 minutes to uh, 167 minutes. Again, 17% improvement. Further, they showed that the slowest or lowest performers seemed to improve the most, right? So the people who are the outliers at the bottom seemed to improve the most, while the people who are at the top, the top outliers, seemed to improve no better than the average. Okay. Okay. All this is like pretty interesting, but honestly, there's nothing here that proves that this has any relationship to the audit and feedback method. Now they show a graph and it's, it starts going up, you know, when they start doing the audit and feedback. But I can tell you this, at LACUSC, during that same study period, we made dramatic improvements in our throughput too, and we don't have any audit and feedback. And in fact, just a couple of months ago, we covered a study from NAMPSES, the National you know, Hospital Ambulatory Medical Care Survey, that also showed that EDs nationally had big improvements in throughput over the past seven to 10 years. And you know, most of them were not engaging in this aggressive sort of audit and feedback. The low performers always improve more than the high performers for a couple of reasons. I mean, one theory is that they're embarrassed, so they work harder or whatever. The other possibility and likely possibility is that they have more room to improve, you know? So it's like, you know, know, it's easier for them to improve, right? And frankly, regression to the mean accounts for that, right? Like, oh, you had a particularly bad year. Next year, you're probably more likely to be at the mean than you are at the bottom half, especially if most of it's due to noise and stuff like that. So, you know, ultimately, I love the idea of audit and feedback. I love the idea of knowing how well you perform. And I I love to believe that it has some impact on improving yourself. It's hard to improve yourself without that, without knowing how you're doing. That's, That's true. But this study doesn't do too much to advance the science about audit and feedback, unfortunately. Editor's commentary. This single site study 
shows a temporal relationship between the development of an audit and feedback system for ED providers and improvements in throughput metrics. However, the lack of control groups and other broad trends in the emergency department throughput across the nation make this observed relationship tenuous at best. More study using more robust mechanisms will be necessary to convince us that individual provider-level audit and feedback can substantially move the needle and sustain that movement. Welcome, listeners, to the January 2022 EMA Ultra Summary. I'm Jenny Beck-Esme, and with me, of course, as always, is Jess Monis. Hello, Jess. Hello, Jenny. And aren't you proud of me? I have stopped time traveling and finally figured out what year it is. It's 2022. Listeners, if you missed last month, I had no idea what year it was when I said goodbye to you all, but I figured it out. Happy New Year. Happy 2022. All right. Let this be a better year. Let this be a better year. Okay, here we go. We've got a bunch of great papers. Let's waste no more time. Paper number one, effect of vasopressin and methylprednisolone versus placebo on return of spontaneous circulation in patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest. This is a multi-center randomized control trial looking at whether the combo of vasopressin and methylprednisolone improves ROSC for in-hospital cardiac arrest. The idea here being that vasopressin will cause vasoconstriction and result in increased coronary perfusion pressure, while steroids will increase cortisol levels, and hopefully this combination is going to give us a better chance of achieving ROSC. And this isn't a new concept. You can actually listen to a discussion of the use of vasopressin back in the January 2015 critical care mailbag. Nevertheless, these interventions are not yet standard or part of ACLS. Here, the control group got ACLS and epi, while the intervention group got ACLS, epi, methylprednisolone, and vasopressin. They found that 42% of patients received ROSC in the intervention group compared to a third in the control group. That sounds promising. Unfortunately, though, as we've discussed before, ROSC itself isn't really that meaningful an outcome. I don't knock it. ROSC is important. But what we really want to know is whether this combination of interventions had an impact on meaningful outcomes, like neurologically intact survival. Like Jess said last month, is grandpa walking out of the hospital? Yeah, exactly, right? That's what we want to know. We don't want to just know, like, if you got a pulse back, we want to know, are they coming home? Right. Right. All right, paper number two, angiography after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest without ST segment elevation. This German trial randomized survivors of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with any initial rhythm and post-ROSC ECG without STEMI to either immediate or delayed coronary angiography. The primary outcome was 30-day survival, and secondary outcome was a composite of death or survival with severe neurologic disability. Almost all of the early cath group got the procedure within three hours, and about two-thirds of the delayed group got it two days later. Despite all of these cardiac caths and PCIs, there was no difference between the groups of early and delayed angiography in any analysis. In fact, there was even a trend towards harm from death or neurologic disability with early angiography that was right on the border of significance. It seems that in the absence of a STEMI, the focus should be on resuscitation, stabilization, and evaluation into the cause of the arrest. Let the upstairs folks worry about the cath. That makes sense to me. Paper number three, 
Protection of BNT162B2 Vaccine Booster Against COVID-19 in Israel. To boost or not to boost, that is the question. And in fact, there is an entire MRAP HD segment on this on COVID booster shots. It's on all of our minds. This is a study out of Israel looking at the rate of COVID infections and the severity of illness in patients who got a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine. It's a review of a database of around 500,000 patients who were 60 years old or older who were vaccinated. They compared groups of patients who had received two doses of the Pfizer to those who had received the initial two doses plus a booster. They found a reduced rate of confirmed infections and serious infections in the group that received the booster. Now, it seems like the FDA is moving to approve boosters for all adults in the U.S. I, for one, have kind of become pro-booster. Yeah, I'm definitely a pro booster. I, I was literally like the first in line to get the booster as soon as it like, yeah. potentially became available. I mean, it seems like what's the real downside? At this point, that booster shot is not taking a shot out of someone else's arm. It's just an extra shot for me. And yes, we've talked about some of the potential side effects, the myocarditis, the pericarditis and all of that, but none of those risks seemed that high. I think it's a good thing to do. Yeah, I'm for boosters. I'm excited that my Kid got, you know, was eligible Yay! and got their shot. Yeah, so I'm just excited. Paper number four, Regen Cove Antibody Combination and Outcomes in Outpatients with COVID-19. This may sound familiar to you because this is the monoclonal antibody cocktail that Trump received. So these authors asked if the combination of imdevimab and casarivimab could prevent hospitalization or death within 29 days in patients with early COVID and at least one risk factor for severe infection. Participants received either the antibodies or placebo at a median of three days after symptom onset. The primary outcome, which was a composite of all-cause mortality or COVID-related hospitalizations, was 3% less in those who received the drug. Median time to resolution of symptoms was also four days shorter for the treatment group. One key element worth mentioning is that there was actually no difference between groups in terms of death. So at a number needed to treat of 33 to prevent one hospitalization with no actual mortality benefit, given the great cost and logistical barriers to administration, this drug becomes a little less exciting. Yeah, it sure does. The cost is a real hindrance, I think, for this. And and then, of course, how feasible it really is to get to people. And the other thing is, how many patients do you have coming to the ED being like, I'm here for my monoclonal? And I'm just like, oh, we don't do that in our ED. You know what I mean? Like, you got to get it as an outpatient. Yeah. And that's not consistent because some EDs are doing the monoclonal and some aren't. So people can't even necessarily know whether they're going to be able to get it in the ED. I was going to say, congratulations on saying the MABs really well. I was really happy you got to say that. Not me. (laughs) (laughs) I practice. I'm not going to lie. I practice considerably. Thank you so much. All right. Paper number five, Phenis thromboembolism in patients discharged from the emergency department with ankle fractures, a population-based cohort study. We know that immobilization is a risk factor for developing a venous thromboembolism. This study wants to specifically find the 90-day risk of a clot in ED patients with a non-operative ankle fracture. The authors looked at a Canadian patient database of over 80,000 patients who were diagnosed with an ankle fracture and found the 90-day incidence of a VTE to be 1.3%. They went on to identify risk factors making patients more likely to develop a clot, 
And these were the kinds of things you would expect. Age over 65, a prior history of a clot, and recent hospitalization or surgery. Overall, this is a pretty low incidence of a venous thromboembolism, but it's definitely not nothing. I mean, anything over 1% we start to think of as, you know, something. Is it worth discussing with your orthopedist whether anticoagulation is indicated in a super high-risk patient? Maybe. All right, paper number six. The influence of the availability heuristic on physicians in the emergency department. This is a really cool paper that looks at the availability heuristic. This is the cognitive shortcut we take based on recent experiences or emotionally charged situations. In essence, because it comes to mind easily, it must be important. Using VA data, this author looked at the utilization of pulmonary embolus diagnostic testing in the 60 days before and after a physician diagnosed a PE. The rate of testing underwent a relative increase of about 15%, 1.5% absolute, in the 10 days following the diagnosis. This suggests that the availability heuristic, aka I just had a case like this, may in fact bias our practice more than we think. What we don't know is whether this phenomenon represents over-testing or a correction of under-testing. Either way, we should at least be cognizant of our own bias. You know, I think that these mental biases and heuristics and things are just so interesting. And I love Swami and Ken talk about some of these sometimes in their segment. And they're just so interesting. Oh, they're fascinating. And, you know, and we all have that case, right? Yeah, We all have that course. case, whether it came up in the M&M or whatever it is that you're like, okay, now, you know what? I always think about this. Every time I have a patient who says this, this always comes to mind. So certainly is going to influence how we practice. Yeah. As a attending in a teaching hospital, I like to point that out to my residents when I am doing that. I say to them, this might not be exactly the way that we need to practice on this kind of case every time. But because I recently had X, Y, or Z, right. I'm thinking about this and I might do a little bit more. Paper number seven, fixed versus variable dosing of prothrombin complex concentrate for bleeding complications of vitamin K antagonists, the proper three randomized clinical trial. This is a multi-center RCT comparing two different dosing strategies for four-factor PCC for reversing vitamin K agonists in patients who have extracranial bleeding, meaning they excluded any patients with an intracranial hemorrhage. It's a non-inferiority study looking at whether a fixed-dose regimen of 1,000 units is non-inferior to standard therapy, which is a weight-based dosing that uses INR checks. They found really good clinical outcomes in both groups, but they couldn't actually say the fixed dosing was non-inferior because the study design assumed the fixed dose would be 4% superior. A fixed dose may be useful in resource-limited settings, but it is worth noting that they did find that more patients in that fixed dose group required redosing. Your hospital almost certainly has a policy for giving PCC. I probably wouldn't go rogue based on this study. Yeah, I agree. Paper number eight, evaluation of the patients with flank pain in the emergency department by modified stone score. Which patients with suspected nephrolithiasis need a CT? This study attempts to answer that question using the modified stone score, which assigns points for gender, duration of pain, hematuria, prior stone history, and a CRP less than 5. Basically, the higher the score, the more likely patients were to have a stone, with only around 1% of those considered high risk having an important alternate diagnosis. 
So even though this study is far from methodologically perfect, if you have a strong clinical suspicion and a high modified stone score, you can probably skip the CT. To hear more about this, listen to the 2018 MRAP segment on the use of ultrasound and renal stone evaluation. I'm going to stick with renal stones here for paper number nine. Does early intervention improve outcomes for patients with acute ureteral colic? This is a multi-center propensity-matched cohort chart review study looking at patients who had a CT-proven renal colic, examining whether early surgical intervention or expectant management is better. They compared patients who had surgical intervention within five days of their ED visit to those who had no intervention within those first five days. The primary outcome they were interested in here was the rate of treatment failure, meaning the patients had to have some kind of rescue intervention or hospitalization within 60 days. And the secondary outcome of interest to us in the ED was the rate of ureteral colic-related ED revisits in that 60-day window. Are these patients that we're diagnosing going to come back with more pain? They found the group that had early surgical intervention had similar rates of treatment failure but had higher rates of post-procedural problems like hospitalizations and ED revisits. Since patients have a decent chance of passing their stone on their own, and the early intervention group didn't do any better and in fact may have done worse in some outcomes, this paper seems to come down on the side of expectant management. Now, we are not making final treatment decisions, of course, but this is going to be helpful for us to know when we're counseling these patients on what they might expect. And I like this paper because I like to know that if my patients can't get into urology within the next couple days, it's okay. Yeah, totally. So paper number 10, Early Computed Tomography Coronary Angiography, CTCA, in Patients with Suspected Acute Coronary Syndrome Randomized Control Trial. CTCA has largely fallen out of favor in the ED setting in the era of the heart score and high-sensitivity troponins where we frequently send low-risk chest pain patients home without any provocative testing. This multi-center RCT looked at intermediate-risk ED patients with suspected ACS who had a previous history of coronary artery disease, positive troponin, or an abnormal ECG. Patients were randomized to early CTCA or standard care. There was no difference between groups and the primary outcome of major adverse cardiac events at one year, although early CTCA did slightly reduce the number of invasive angiograms. As Mike points out, these are higher-risk chest pain patients, and we typically bring cardiology on board to help manage them. At the very least, they probably bought themselves a hospital stay. Paper 11, Emergency Cricothyrotomy in Morbid Obesity, Comparing the Bougie-Guided and Traditional Techniques in a Live Animal Model. This is a small, prospective, randomized study comparing two techniques for crikes in a sheep model that was designed to simulate performing this procedure on a morbidly obese patient who has impalpable anatomic landmarks. They had PGY-1 through 3 residents watch an instructional video just one time and then perform either a traditional technique with a shyly trach and no bougie or the bougie-assisted technique, which many of us have heard about. They found a faster average time to procedure completion in the bougie group versus the traditional Shiley group, as well as a better first attempt success rate. This would suggest that the bougie technique is both faster and safer than the traditional approach. Check out the June 2021 Rural Medicine segment for more Craig talk. 
Paper 12, traumatic arthrotomies. Do they all need the operating room? For a long time, it has been maintained that even a small, non-grossly contaminated penetrating joint wound needs to go to the OR for a washout, despite an absence of evidence to support this practice. This prospective study looked at traumatic arthrotomies at four trauma centers to determine the rate of complications within 90 days. There was more septic arthritis in the operative group, with only one of the non-operative patients developing a septic joint, so only 1.5%. That being said, since this was non-randomized, the operative group had much larger and more contaminated wounds, and the costs were also about 12-fold higher. I don't think this is necessarily practice-changing for emergency physicians. If you are worried that the joint is compromised, I would still call ortho. However, if they decide not to take them to the operating room, or if you happen to miss a subtle joint-penetrating wound, you can be reassured that the risk of septic arthritis is low. That's nice. That's a good paper to reassure for those ones you might miss if it's not super obvious. Right. Paper 13. Antibiotics for Lower Respiratory Tract Infection in Children Presenting in Primary Care in England, Arctic PC. Ah, the age-old antibiotics for likely viral syndrome conundrum. <laughs> right. <laughs> Here, the authors look specifically at pediatric patients with lower respiratory tract infections to see if amoxicillin helps to reduce the duration of the children's symptoms. Since we know that most of these infections are likely viral, this seems like kind of a no-brainer of a study. But as Whitney points out in the full segment, there actually is a paucity of evidence specifically on the use of antibiotics for children with lower respiratory tract infections. So this fills in that gap. It's a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study of around 400 children from ages 6 months to 12 years, and they compared a week-long course of amox to standard supportive cares. And surprise, surprise, they found no difference between the groups. Both groups had the same duration of symptoms, same symptom severity score, same rate of return due to worsening symptoms, same rate of hospitalization, and same rate of side effects. I don't know who out there needs to hear this, but viral syndromes don't need antibiotics. No. No. This is shocking news. I know, right? Shocking. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Paper 14, Prospective Multicenter Controlled Trial of Mobile Stroke Units. This is the first large, albeit non-randomized, observational trial of mobile stroke units from the U.S. Mobile stroke units, MSUs, are specialized, very expensive ambulances with two medics, a critical care nurse, a portable CT, and telemedicine support from a neurologist. Patients who called 911 with possible stroke symptoms within a four-and-a-half-hour onset got either EMS or the MSU, during banker's hours only, dispatched by alternating weeks. The primary outcome was a modified Rankin score at 90 days. Mean scores were better in the MSU group, but this study has some very serious problems. The authors only analyzed patients who were retroactively deemed TPA eligible. So while the trucks were dispatched over 10,000 times, only about 1,000 patients were included in the final analysis. We have no idea what the outcomes were in all of these missing patients. Additionally, MSUs gave more TPA than EMS, but they also gave it to 17% of patients who were later deemed ineligible for TPA. 
One can only imagine what would be said about the ED if we gave IVTPA to this many patients in whom it was not indicated. Mobile stroke units need to be much better studied and deemed cost-effective before we redesign the entire system around this extremely expensive, cumbersome intervention. My wish list? Park that van outside my ED to help scan the long list of patients waiting hours for imaging. That would be helpful. (laughs) Preach, Jess. That is a lot of TPA given to patients who did not need TPA. Yep. Whoa. Sure was. Paper number 15, Evaluation and Management of Traumatic Pneumothorax, a Western Trauma Association Critical Decisions Algorithm. Here, the Western Trauma Association gives us updated guidelines for dealing with traumatic pneumothorax, which is great since the classic approach of sticking a giant hose in all of these patients is rather barbaric. Here are their recommendations in brief. First, in any unstable patient with a pneumothorax, thoracostomy is recommended even if you think that they could be unstable due to other injuries. Next, they recommend using the smallest tube possible. Yay! Even in the case of a hemoneumothorax. Third, if you find a pneumothorax greater than two centimeters on x-ray or greater than three and a half centimeters on CT, place the chest tube. If the pneumothorax is smaller, you can go ahead and observe the patient for six hours and get a repeat x-ray. And last, they recommend prophylactic antibiotics before any chest tube procedure. While it's not great for resident training to be placing fewer chest tubes, it's probably good news for our patients. And I am certainly glad for official recommendations for smaller tubes. So bigger is not always better. Not always better. No. Paper 16. Diagnostic Accuracy of Physical Examination Findings for Mid-Facial and Mandibular Fractures. This is a retrospective, single-center cohort study examining the test characteristics of different physical exam findings for mid-face and mandibular fractures. There were a number of highly specific exam findings, including diplopia, raccoon eyes, bony crepitus, and jaw malocclusion. Most of these are pretty obvious, and I suspect all of us would perform a maxillofacial CT in those circumstances. Unfortunately, None of the physical exam findings were sensitive enough to obviate the need for imaging in ED patients with significant facial trauma. So yeah, if someone's face is all jacked up, I'll order a CT, but really, nothing practice-changing here. Paper 17. Safety of femoral nerve blocks for hip fractures in adult patients treated with anti-10A direct oral anticoagulants. This is an interesting paper. Pain control for hip fractures is crucial, of course. But most of our hip fracture patients are geriatric, so we want to avoid the opioids. Many have advocated for nerve blocks, and you can listen to some great prior MRAP segments on this back in September 2018 and March 2019. But you might be concerned about performing this procedure on patients who are on DOAX. And given that this is a geriatric patient population a lot of the time, there's going to be a lot of the patients who are going to be on DOAX. This is an observational prospective cohort study comparing ultrasound-guided femoral nerve block to conventional analgesia, and they used acetaminophen, something called dipyrone, which is not a medication used in the United States, and opioids. And they let the patients choose which option they preferred. They found no difference in major bleeding events between the two groups and that the nerve block group had more effective pain control. This really favors the nerve block, 
But unfortunately, it's a really small study, less than 70 patients, so it's hard to say how generalizable this is going to be based on this paper alone. All right, yeah, just don't poke the thing that's pulsating. Right. Just use your ultrasound. Yeah. Right, use your (laughs) ultrasound. Stay away from that one, yep. All right, paper 18. Sensitivity of diffusion-weighted magnetic resonance imaging in transient global amnesia as a function of time from symptom onset. So transient global amnesia is basically the inability to form new memories and is actually pretty benign and short-lived. The best part of TGA is that if you say something awkward in the patient's room, you can slowly back out, come back a few minutes later, and start from scratch. Hi, I'm Dr. Monis. I I don't believe we've met. (laughs) Classic. Classic. I love it. Patients with TGA will sometimes develop diffusion-weighted MRI changes in the hippocampus, but this seems to take some time to occur. These authors performed a systematic review and meta-analysis to determine the sensitivity of diffusion-weighted MRI for TGA based on time from symptom onset. Turns out, it's not too good. MRI was only 15% sensitive within the first 12 hours, which improved over the next 3 to 4 days, but only to 72%. So in the ED setting, early MRI is poorly sensitive for TGA and should not be done for this indication. So if neuro comes down and they're like, well, let's just get an MRI, at least you can say that there's some evidence to suggest in this case it's not helpful. Paper number 19, the impact of racism on emergency healthcare workers. We've covered some papers recently on EMA on racism in medicine and specifically on the impact on patient care and the patient experience. But it's important for us to remember that healthcare workers are also impacted by racism in our workplace. This paper is looking at how racism impacts stress levels of healthcare workers working in the emergency department. They used an anonymous electronic survey of a variety of healthcare workers, including attendings, residents, advanced practice providers, nurses, and even non-clinical staff. The majority of those surveyed reported they were very concerned about the state of racism in the U.S. Nearly half of all Black participants reported high or moderately high stress levels as a result of racism, compared to about a third of other participants and about a quarter of white participants. Now, we only have so much control over the racism on the part of our patients and their families, but we have complete control of the racism among our employees. And one-third of Black participants reported being very concerned about experiencing racism and discrimination from their medical colleagues at work. Now, this study was only done in one city, so the experiences of these participants may not be generalizable to other cities within the U.S., and it would be interesting to be able to compare. The authors go beyond pointing out the problem by suggesting some strategies for improvement, including training in allyship. This is a message we are seeing repeatedly in popular culture, and it is being borne out in the research. Again, I don't know who out there needs to hear this, but we have a racism problem, period. I'm glad to be seeing recommendations on ways to improve. And I feel like we end every one of these, you know, every one of these segments by saying we have to do better, right? We have to do better. All right, paper 20. Improving emergency department throughput using audit and feedback with peer comparison among emergency department physicians. This is a single center before and after study from Yale that describes their experience with an automated peer comparison system. 
Using EMR data, daily, quarterly, and annual reports were available for admission rate, time to discharge, time to admission, and patients seen per hour. The authors compare individual physician metrics in the year prior to system implementation to several years after. The admission rate decreased by about 7%, and time to admission and discharge decreased by about 40 minutes. Unfortunately, the study design means those changes cannot be attributed directly to the peer comparison system. And as Mike points out, there were similar ED throughput trends at places without this feedback available. This is definitely food for thought, and let's be honest, many of us are competitive and type A by nature, so maybe it provides some motivation, but let's also remember that this says nothing about quality of care. And with that, we conclude the first month of 2022. Happy New Year to all our EMA listeners, and may this year bring more joy and a lot less COVID. Oh, please. It's it's time to talk a little natty. Talk a little natty with Ken Milne. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the January Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. I'm Swami here, as always, with my good, close friend, Dr. Ken Milne. Happy, happy New Year's to you, too, my friend. I am I'm actually pretty happy to be put 2021 in the rearview mirror. Ken, we did say the same thing about putting 2020 in the rearview mirror, and uh, 2021 was not as much better as we hoped it would be. Hopefully, 2022. That's going to be the one. That's going to be the one where we, uh, we leave the last couple of years behind and we move on. Fingers are crossed. <laughs> well, tell me, Ken, any New Year's resolutions? Are you a New Year's resolution kind of guy and, and have you made one? I'm not a New Year's resolution kind of guy, but when we were setting this up and I knew that we would be changing the calendar and going to a new year, I started reflecting upon it. And one thing, you know, and this will come as no surprise because I think many people make New Year's resolutions about getting back to the gym or physical activity, those types of things. But I'm going to try to get back in the tank, back in the pool. That's what I mean by tank. Getting back into the pool again. It's been hard with COVID because the gyms have been closed and you can't get into the pool. But I want to get back in and keep my swimming up. It's really good, you know, not just physically, but it's good for my mental health. Just a, It's like a sensory deprivation chamber for an hour where you're in a different medium moving through. Sometimes you can feel your heart pounding in your chest and stuff like that, but everything else is blocked out. And I think that's what I need right now. Ken, I know we have talked about this in the past. I can't remember where we talked about it, but the listeners might not know you are a very competitive swimmer as a younger man. And this is one of the things that we initially had in common because I was also a competitive swimmer, but the competitions the two of us were involved in were quite different. And your competitive level was considerably higher than mine. But you saying getting back in the pool, I'm assuming that means another run for the Canadian Olympic team. <laughs> no, no, no. Those, those <laughs> days are gone. Uh, even entertaining thoughts like that are so far gone. But no, it's just about, it's, again, it's about, you know, physical wellness, but also mental wellness. I really find that you and I share a, a love for running and going out on the road and taking a pair of sneakers anywhere you go and you can get a run in. Swimming has some unique things too about, like I said, being in a different medium and being able to just tune everything out and just focus in on, it's maybe a bit of mindfulness even, you know, just focusing in on the moment. Well, I hope that the pools are open and you're able to get back in, but let's get into our topic for the month. 
Our topic for the month is going to be surrogate endpoints. This topic selection was prompted by a drug that was prominent in the news last summer into fall, aducanumab. And as a reminder, this drug was FDA approved via a fast track process in June of 2021 for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Ken, there was a lot of controversy around that approval. I think you're underselling it. <laughs> a lot of controversy? Um, I think the poop hit some circular object and then went, <laughs> let's see here. Um, the FDA had an 11 member advisory committee, which reviewed the evidence and it gave its recommendations to the FDA and apparently unanimously all 11 members voted not to approve this drug. Now the FDA declined the recommendation and of course they're allowed to do that. An advisory committee advises, but the FDA doesn't have to actually take the advice. And they decline the recommendation from its 11-member expert panel and approve the drug anyways. Now, following this controversial decisions, three members of this expert advisory committee actually quit in protest. You're right, Ken. I did kind of undersell it. This was extremely contentious. This was really a dumpster fire at the time. And People might forget a little bit about it, but I think that your little review there is bringing it back. And in July, there was a really good piece by Shannon Brownlee and Jeannie Lenzer, an editorial looking at why the FDA is broken. In fact, that was the title, The FDA is Broken. We'll drop a link to that in the show notes. The heart of the matter, as you stated, is that the FDA approved this drug based on a surrogate endpoint. And I think that's really important for us to look at because the data that was there didn't say that this really worked except for this surrogate endpoint. So Ken, what is a surrogate endpoint before we get deep into the specific drug and its specific surrogate endpoint? Well, we've talked about surrogate endpoints multiple times on this program. And a surrogate endpoint is a substitute to replace a clinical outcome. Now, we frame it a little differently. We use a little bit different terminology because I'm always talking about poos, do's, moos, lose, sues, those types of things. But when it comes to a clinical outcome, this is what we refer to as a patient-oriented outcome. It means something to the patient. It is important to the patient. And then these surrogate outcomes can be different forms. So you can have a loo, and that's a lab-oriented outcome. And as an example, it would be a change of troponin level for a myocardial infarction. But I don't know about you, but I've never had a STEMI patient come to me later and say, Hey, Doc, what was my peak troponin level? You know, they care more about, hey, did I live or die? So I guess they're not coming back to you if they had mortality. But quality of life, am I going to be able to do things? Do I have angina? Those types of things. And then there are moos. And as a rural physician, maybe I'm trying to promote that. But that's a monitor-oriented outcome. And this is a change of mean arterial blood pressure in a septic patient. Now, septic patients, again, don't leave the ICU going, hey, doc, uh, what was my map? You know, they're more concerned about, did they leave the ICU with all their fingers and toes intact? And then, of course, the disease-oriented outcome, or a do. And an example of this would be the size of an intracranial hemorrhage. And so a patient with an intracranial hemorrhage on an anticoagulant who gets their Coumadin or their DOAC reversed are typically not concerned about 
hey, was there a statistical change in the volume of blood upstairs in my head? You know, they're more concerned about, what's my neurological function? Am I leaving the front door playing the piano if I could play the piano before? So those are the surrogate outcomes. And really what we want to see is clinical outcomes, patient-oriented outcomes. The surrogate outcomes can fall into these different categories. Let's look back at this Alzheimer's drug. I'm not going to say it again. It's unpronounceable. What was the surrogate outcome that they looked at? They were looking at a decrease in beta amyloid protein plaques in the brain on imaging. Pretty good example of something that the patient wouldn't really care about. No patient's going to ask us how much beta amyloid protein plaque they have or, or don't have based on the use of this drug. And really, again, we have to contrast that with a clinical endpoint. Now, the FDA defines a clinical endpoint as the measure of whether people in a trial feel or function better or live longer. While no patient is going to walk around saying again that they have less amyloid plaque, they are going to say, well, my memory is better than it was before because of this drug. Or I was able to live longer with an intact memory because of this drug. That would be a more patient-centered outcome that the patient would actually care about. Exactly. When we go back again to this Alzheimer's drug, it was tested in two phase three RCTs. And both of those phase three RCTs were negative for the clinical endpoint, meaning that there was no patient-oriented benefit to the drug. However, analysis from one of these trials, which, by the way, had been stopped early, and we've talked about stopping early in the past. It was stopped early because of efficacy concerns. But in that, they found something in one of these secondary outcomes. And when they looked at the surrogate endpoint of the lower development of amyloid plaques, which has been thought to be some kind of a marker for progression of Alzheimer's, they found a positive outcome, meaning that the drug slowed or stopped production of those beta amyloid proteins. Is it common for us to see that discrepancy between the patient-oriented outcome and the surrogate marker? Oh yeah, it is. It's easier also to show a statistical difference in something of a surrogate endpoint than a clinical endpoint. And, and that's for a variety of reasons. Well, let's get into those reasons. Why do we see that? Why do we see a change in a surrogate endpoint, but not in the clinical endpoint of interest? Well, it, it's complicated, but the simplest answer is correlation is not causation. And I'm going to use the stroke literature as an example. Big surprise there. <laughs> Restoring blood flow with a thrombolytic is associated with better outcomes. However, we now know that restoring blood flow does not necessarily cause better outcomes if the distal brain tissue is already dead with a lack of robust collateral circulation. And it's often easier to measure a surrogate outcome, and sometimes it's easier to measure something objectively, like what is the change in blood pressure? What is the change in troponin? Those are easy to measure. Now, some of the outcome measures that are important, like mortality, are easy to measure. But other things like quality of life or neurologic function are a bit more subjective and fuzzy. And we have talked about many of these issues before in terms of correlation and causation. Again, we will refer people back to some of those prior segments to listen to. In this case, the biological plausibility was on shaky ground. But there are situations where that's not the case. As an example, we don't have large double-blind placebo-controlled trials of vasopressors and septic shock showing mortality benefit. However, I think that most physicians would agree that an effort to raise the blood pressure when patients have septic shock is useful, and pressors do do that. 
Now, based on the fact that we don't have RCTs, we don't have causation. Should we abstain from using vasopressors and septic shock patients until we have those RCTs? Uh, you know my evidence-based medicine answer is going to be, it all depends. I do not apply vasopressors broadly in septic patients. That doesn't mean I don't use them, and that doesn't mean I advocate that other people should not use them. If you're perfusing well as a patient with sepsis, and you're cerebrating well, I try not to focus so much on the monitor and what the map is, and consider the overall clinical situation rather than just one data point. Vasoconstricting vascular beds can also lead to harm. And we do not have good evidence of benefit by raising the map. And this is not a parachute issue, and it could be tested. A randomized control trial could be designed to answer whether a vasopressor has a clinical benefit in sepsis patients. And that's a really important point that most of the treatments, if not the vast majority of them, are not parachutes. This is not a, I can't possibly test it because clearly it works. That is the parachute analogy. Clearly, parachutes save lives of people who jump out of planes. We're not going to do an RCT. Most of the drugs that we have are not parachutes, if, if any of them. In fact, I think we'd have a hard time identifying one that truly is a parachute. Yeah, most medical situations are not parachutes. We have a pretty good idea about predicting gravity. And I know they're called laws, right? Laws, but they're descriptive laws. We know if we drop something around a massive object, it will be pulled towards that, and that is gravity. It's a description of an observed event. But when it comes to managing septic patients and looking at vasoconstrictors, this is nowhere near the descriptive level of the law of gravity. Yeah, I think that's a really important point for us to look at. One thing that we have to really mention when it comes to this Alzheimer's drug is that it was approved through an accelerated pathway that the FDA uses, which allows drugs to get approved faster and for a lower cost. How is that relevant in this particular drug approval? Well, you're right. Using surrogate endpoints can reduce the duration of a trial and the cost of a trial and also the complexity of the trial. Ultimately, it can result in patients getting faster access to a new drug. That doesn't answer the question of whether it actually has a patient-oriented outcome. Now, the method of approval using surrogate outcomes has been increasing over the last three decades. It used to be less than 50%, but now it's risen to about 60%. And the most common categories of drugs that use surrogate endpoints to get FDA approval is cancer medications. And that's actually sitting at about 80% now. When we talk about cancer medications, these are potentially life-saving drugs for life-threatening illnesses. So isn't it a good thing that we have an accelerated pathway? Again, you know, it all depends. You know, mentioning cancer, the classic example of a surrogate endpoint used for FDA approval was another one of these monoclonal antibodies, these MABs. And this one was for metastatic breast cancer that was approved in 2008. And actually, when clinical trials were done looking at clinical endpoints, the trials failed to show longer life expectancy, and the approval was actually revoked in 2011, so three years later. 
Now you may say, well, Ken, that's an anecdote. That's one off. There are actually many examples in the cancer literature with a similar story. And I'll list a few of those in the show notes. But one of them, in fact, didn't improve things. It actually was found to be harmful, even though the surrogate endpoint looked good. So a couple of examples of medications where this accelerated process actually harmed people or at least wasted people's time and money, if not actually harming them. Are there examples where this process actually worked? Should we continue to have this process in place for those life-saving medications or potentially life-saving medications? Well, I think it's, it's important to have these accelerated pathways, but we have to use them carefully. And the example that is used to show benefit is the accelerated approval process that was really started in the early 1990s during the height of the HIV and AIDS epidemic. It feels like you want to say with great power comes great responsibility, Ken. Is that what you are looking for? Because it seems that this is really giving a lot of power, this this rapid approval or accelerated pathway for drugs, but it has to be used smartly. Yeah, just to apply it across the board, you know, one size doesn't fit all. And so we need to think and reflect and then decide. And, and this gets back to, you know, you convene a panel of almost a dozen experts in the field and all of them say, mm, no, and then you don't accept that advice. So that's disappointing. There's not an agreed upon validated tool to assist regulators. I looked into this a bit and and found that in Germany, they set the bar with a R of greater than or equal to 0.85 for the lower bounds of the confidence interval on the correlation coefficient. That's the R, the correlation coefficient. Okay, so that's trying to put a, a statistical like line in the sand. But then again, that boils down to just one data point, doesn't it? Now, there is a three-step framework that was proposed by Taylor and Elston about 12 years ago, but regulators rarely use this three-step approach. And their three-step approach was, you know, it has to have biological probability or biological, sorry, plausibility, not probability, plausibility. And then the second thing is that there has to be an association between the surrogate and the clinical endpoint at the individual patient level. And then the third thing was evidence from multiple randomized control trials showing improved effect on the surrogate also improves the final clinical outcome. My guess is that third one of those framework is a hard one to jump over, having multiple RCTs showing an improved effect from the surrogate to the clinical outcome. The first two might be relatively easy to kind of put together, but that third one is going to be a bit of a hurdle. And that's really where the hurdle came for this drug, aducanumab. I said it twice, Ken. That's twice in this podcast, and that's as many times as I'm going to say it. The FDA is requiring Biogen, the maker of this drug, to prove in an RCT that the drug improves clinical outcomes. Is that acceptable to give this emergency authorization now, let people use the drug because it could be beneficial, but the company needs to produce randomized control trial data showing a clinical efficacy? Well, um, looking at the data, I agree with the 11-member advisory committee, and I would have voted no if I was on that panel. It should not have been approved, and Biogen should demonstrate a net patient-oriented outcome prior to approval, in my opinion. 
Aside from the cost of the drug, the potential for harm, as we see with some of those monoclonal antibodies directed at cancer that we are going to drop in the show notes, what other issues are there in approving this medication if it shows no clinical improvement? So let's say that we took away the cost and we said, there's no harm. There may not be a clinical improvement, but there's no harm. How else could this still hurt the patient? Well, I don't want to gloss over cost because there's an actual number there. And this drug costs about $56,000, and that's US dollars. That's real money. That's not Canadian loonies and toonies there. (laughs) $56,000 per patient per year. Now, if there's no clinical benefit, there can only be harm. And even if it was a rare harm, any harm without benefit, I think would be unacceptable to patients. Now, the most common adverse events in this trial were brain swelling. That's got to be a surrogate outcome for badness. And how about small intracranial hemorrhages? Again, the other most common adverse event. Another surrogate outcome of badness. Bleeding in your brain and swelling of your brain does not associate usually with better outcomes. However, you asked me to put cost and potential harm aside and asked how else could it harm patients, it will now be very hard, I think, to get patients to participate in a randomized, triple-blinded, placebo-control trial. And it could also divert research attention away from other potential avenues or areas to explore for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, which we all agree is a horrible condition. I think those last two points are really important, Ken, and and that's really what I wanted to get at because I think people have to understand that approving this drug could actually shut down the production and research into useful drugs, especially because we know how pharmaceutical companies work. If they see that there's one drug approved for an indication and there are many, many millions of patients with Alzheimer's disease just in the U.S. alone, that's a huge market. Pharmaceutical companies are going to be more pushed towards making a Me Too drug, their own aducanumab, that they can then sell to people instead of maybe putting in the R&D to produce new beneficial drugs. And you're right, as a patient, if the FDA told me, well, this drug is approved for your disease, why would I then enter myself into a placebo-controlled trial? That's going to be a much harder obstacle to get through. So this isn't just about the cost. This isn't just about the potential for harm. It's also the fact that this can really stunt the development of effective medications and can As you and I get older, our parents get older, this is something that is going to weigh heavier and heavier on our minds as well as the minds of all of our patients and our friends. We want effective medications for Alzheimer's disease. Approving this drug doesn't get us any closer. And I think that's a really important point for us to be looking at. The article we started with was by Brownlee and Lenzer. They also recently published another article in the BMJ. Of course, we will drop that in the show notes. And they make some recommendations about what we can do to rectify the current situation we are in with these emergency approvals. Yeah, they provided six recommendations, and and I'll just run through those as a list, and then maybe you can summarize at the end what you think of this. But their six recommendations were, number one, get a panel together of industry-independent experts. And I think that's an important word, independent experts. And of course, get patient representatives, because you know, evidence-based medicine also is concerned with what do patients value and prefer? And define whether and under what circumstances expedited pathways are warranted. So that's the first thing. 
The second thing they said is if a drug is approved through this expedited FDA pathway, patients must be informed that the drug or device is experimental, that the benefit has not been proven, and harm could potentially exceed the benefit. So that's some some transparency there. And I think that's really important to let patients know about the uncertainty of any therapy we provide. The third recommendation was make expedited approvals provisional so that the drug or device is automatically withdrawn if confirmatory trials fail to show benefit. So we don't want that drug out there and being used if we now have evidence that, no, it actually didn't work. The fourth point was require confirmatory trials to be fully enrolled by the time the drug is approved. So make sure you get those trials up and running. And then the fifth point was hold the FDA responsible for ensuring that clinically meaningful endpoints are used in the confirmatory trial. I guess that would protect against gaming the system. And the FDA claims that this is already in place. And then finally, companies must provide the product free or at a price no greater than the manufacturing cost until a confirmatory trial is completed. Ken, I particularly like that last one, not just because it's free and I like stuff that's free, but because it puts the onus on the company to produce the research. Otherwise, they can really delay forever. Oh, the only way for us to really prove this is to get an 11,000 patient study where we follow them over 10 years. We know that that data isn't going to be collected then or and reported for 15, which means they have 15 years to sell their drug. I think we, we really need to hold their feet to the fire. And Swami, it's going to be hard to recruit those people, you know, so that they can use that as saying, well, you know, we've got this provisional approval or this accelerated pathway to get approval. And we promise to do a future study, but well, we've had trouble enrolling patients. And so, you know, you just need more time. Yeah, that, that is such an important point. And if we're going to allow the pharmaceutical companies this little bit of leeway in getting their drugs approved, then let's hold them to real requirements to show that these drugs work. I think that's what we need short of just not doing those emergency approvals. But like you said, those emergency approvals can be very valuable under certain circumstances. You know, we're seeing emergency use authorization for vaccines over the last year, which clearly had a huge benefit to the overall public. So I think we really need to look at this a little closer. I think these couple of articles by Brownlee and Lenzer are are really good. It's a really good way for us to understand what really happened here, what happened with the FDA, why this happened, and what we can do or what we can ask to be done to make this right. And, And as physicians, we really do have a vested interest in this. I know most of our listeners are emergency physicians and they're thinking to themselves, why do I really care about an Alzheimer's drug? But of course, this is going to affect things far outside of Alzheimer's drugs. This is going to affect a lot of different medications as the pharmaceutical companies see an opportunity to get their drugs through faster at less cost to them and with a lower bar for actually proving utility. And so I know that really we were focused on surrogate endpoints, Ken. I think that some of the listeners are going to say you just wanted to rant against the FDA in this drug. We wanted to do both. And that is the truth. We do want to discuss surrogate endpoints because I think it's important as we look through the literature to see, did this group look at a surrogate endpoint, which may or may not be related to a clinical outcome, or do they look at a hard clinical endpoint? And obviously, we want the hard clinical endpoint. Our patients want the hard clinical endpoint. And that's what we really deserve from the medical literature. So I think we should raise the bar, not lower the bar. 
And I sort of look at this like levels of evidence. I mean, you can do an observational study, so you can get surrogate endpoints, but do it well. That's all. Like raise the bar for those surrogate endpoints and make sure you're doing a good job and then collect that randomized control trial data, you know, for specific reasons for an accelerated pathway. But just because you're going to use a surrogate endpoint doesn't mean you need to do a poor job or a poor study. So just because it's an observational study doesn't negate the evidence and doesn't mean it's not worthy and doesn't mean you shouldn't do a good job on it. And ultimately, you know, you talked about our motivations for this. Ultimately, my motivation is always for patients to get the best care based on the best evidence. Well, that's a great place to wrap this up, Ken. Thanks so much for going into this. Thanks for sending me these articles because it was a bit of a wake-up call for me. I was not engaged very much with this particular discussion. After reading it, I understand why we all need to be interested in this, why we all need to be aware of what's going on. So thanks for bringing this to our attention. I think this is such an important statistical and methodologic issue for us to be looking at as we read articles. And I can't wait to talk a little nerdy with you in February. I hope everybody has a great new year. And that, my friends, brings us to the end of Whitney Johnson's Holy inaugural <laughs> inaugural EMA taping. Is this, is this really an EMA taping, though? If Mel Herbert fired oh you, are you just going rogue? Wait a minute. I didn't hit record. <laughs> On your last paper? On any of them. Oh, boy. Oh, my gosh. We just have to do no, Whitney, of course I didn't record. Oh, sorry. my gosh. <laughs> They're just listening to this gibberish. I knew it. I knew it. You got fired. You decided to make your own EMA recordings. This is EMA. It's a rebel EMA. Takeover. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's been a lot of fun for me. It's been fun to walk through this process for this month of prepping papers and you're selecting papers, prepping them. Probably hasn't been as much fun for you. Oh my gosh. uh, I have a super huge respect even more for what you and Sanjay do. Thank you guys for well, giving Sanjay me- Sanjay used to do. <laughs> right? We used to do before he well, was fired. Well, after this, you might want to bring him back for a little bit. <laughs> well, but- <laughs> so, so it's possible that Whitney may quit. And if we're in a pinch, we'll hire Sanjay back to do it next month. But we'll see. That yeah. remains to be seen. <laughs> but thank you. I've learned a lot um, and I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, hopefully we'll see you again on EMA sometime. Maybe not super soon. If we do, uh, great. If not, we'll maybe see Sanjay. Uh, But until then, everybody out there, you know what to do. Stay classy. Thanks for tuning in, guys.